Hello, everybody. This weekend, Friday, December 21st, 2012, it's the end of the world show at the Wiltern Theater. Honey Honey Band, Joey Coco Diaz, Doug Stanhope, and me. Last time we checked, there was only about... Hello. Hello. Last time we checked, there's only about 100 seats left. So uh, if you want in, and no, we don't think the fucking world is going to end. All right? Settle <laughs> down. You really don't? No. Everybody settle down. Um, also, uh, what do you got going on this week? Uh, the improv Thursday? Yeah, the improv Thursday. Uh, we're going to try to do a live podcast there up above. And while we're trying to do like an Ice House Chronicles, but at the improv, it's a Death Squad show. Uh, J- it's uh, Joey Diaz is going to be on it. Um, Jeff Richards is going to host it. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Jeff Richards lately. He is fucking hilarious now. He's, okay. uh, he's got the best. Uh, what's that? Jimmy Fallon? Jimmy Fallon on a roller coaster. Oh, like it's hilarious. It will it'll make you pee yourself. But uh I don't think I'm gonna pee myself, but <laughs> thanks for the plug. Um if you're interested, people keep asking me where do you get those uh those crazy cat t shirts or desk squad shirts, go to deskquad.tv and uh that also uh pays to support the Deskwad <coughs> Death Squad podcast network that Brian produces, which has the excellent Kevin Pereira pointless show on it now. It's a fucking great show. All those podcasts are for free. You can get them all on deskquad.tv. All right, you dirty fucks. We're about to start the podcast. We have Dennis McKenna here, and we're going to get down to business. We're going to find out what the fuck is up. The author of The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. What's with the craziness? What are you doing <laughs> with that sound? You son of a bitch. Settle down. <laughs> Dennis McKenna, first of all, um, and your friends, I'm sorry, I forgot your names because we, we might have indulged in something that makes you forget things really quickly. Keith Cleversley. Put you, if you can talk in the mic if you want. Uh, it's Keith Cleversley. Keith, Keith Cleversley. And, Close uh, enough. Caitlin McKenna. Caitlin McKenna. That's legacy right there, ladies and gentlemen. Dennis, first of all, thank you for, for coming on, and thank you for sending me your book, not once, not twice, but three times. Thank you, Joe. I'm happy <laughs> to be here. I, I want to be sure you got a copy of the book in your hand. Yeah, I started reading it in Vegas, which I think is very ironic, <laughs> you know, to be in that, <laughs> the, the, the darkest of places that mankind has created, and uh, to start to read this book. But uh, as uh, I have uh, known of you for a long, long time, um, I was a... Uh, uh, turned on to uh, some of your brother's stuff through uh, it was a song someone played me not a song but a um, a rave that he did where he would talk over the rave and do like his his end of the world end of time sort of rant yeah yeah um, I think it was the, the it was called Time Wave Zero wasn't it like the even the 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 uh, the, the piece? Yeah, it could have yeah. been. I mean, I know he was in several of those things. The one I remember is Alien Dreamtime. Yes, yes. Yeah. Was that the one? Well, yeah. Alien Dreamtime, wasn't that like a movie? Or was that the No, sound? that, that was, was an album. I oh, think that it was, was it. Album. I think Ken Adams, actually, who just recently released a movie called The Terrence McKenna Experience. Oh, I don't really? know if you saw it. No. Yeah, I mean, it's a... It's a documentary? Old, well, no, not exactly. I mean, it, old clips, you know, from other appearances. Pretty good. Interesting movie. Now, uh, that one clip that I'd listened to um, really may, might have started uh, like a, an entirely new chapter of my life. 
just because it was so, it was so, first of all, it was so freaky, you know, and it was, you, you never heard anyone talk that way. And your brother had this really odd inflection that was like, like, uh, when, when someone is really smart and they talk with a really odd inflection, you start wondering what's wrong with you. You know, like, why am I not talking like this guy? Like, maybe he's right. He's on to something. Like, how confident he is to talk like that. Well, one of the things that was always sort of charming about Terrence was that it didn't really matter what he said. I mean, right. I, I used to get after him and say, what you said 20 minutes ago didn't make any sense. And it directly <laughs> contradicts what you just said, which also doesn't make any sense. You know, but the thing is, it doesn't matter because Terry, Terrence... He could have read the phone book, and it would have sounded great, and people would be <laughs> hanging on every word because he just had that gift. You know, he had the voice. Yeah. He could mesmerize people, and he was, you know, obviously super intelligent, widely read, knew all this stuff, you know, as a result of his reading and in the Tusman program, and before that, alchemy and, you know, black magic and Eastern philosophy and all of this stuff. You know, I mean, he was by far a much broader scholar than I'll ever be. I mean, I'm, I'm quite narrow, you know. I mean, I know science. That's what I know. You know, not really... He, he was just incredible. He could draw on so many you know, threads of knowledge, and and people were hungry to hear it. I mean, here was a guy who could say, you know, he loved provocative statements, right? He loved to, you know, antagonize, the, you know, make people think, and people wanted to be challenged, you know, and that, that was part of his appeal, I think, a great deal of his appeal. I remember in the early 80s, before anybody really got to knew, know who Terrence was, but he was out, a few radio clips and that sort of thing. But back in the early 80s, do you remember Sing Along with Mitch? Sing Along with Mitch, what was it? You that? were probably too young for this. Yeah, Sing Along with Mitch. It was like this really cheesy, stupid uh, music show with this guy Mitch. Uh, do you remember what his last <laughs> name was? I don't know, but it was all about Sing Along with Mitch, and he would present this show, and they'd sing all these old songs, and he'd get people you know, in the audience watching television to sing, right? And so Terrence went on one of these programs, and the moderator said, you know, you're like Sing Along with Mitch, except it's like, think along with Terrence. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and it was like that, you know? He just stimulated to people to think about things they never really thought about. So before. this was the show, Sing Along with Mitch? Uh, this is our good reason for the excitement here tonight. That was the one. The yes, yes, that was the one. One of the immortals of wow. motion pictures and a legend in her own time, Shirley Temple. She's due at the studio wow. any moment. Crazy. You really can't talk like that on TV anymore. People will wonder why you're talking like that. No, I know, I know. <laughs> but this was so, you know, this was way back. I Isn't that know. interesting, though, that yeah, style of talking? Yeah. Like, there was, yeah. like, a weird uh, fake style of talking on television back then that they just don't do anymore. Mm-hmm. What an interesting show. Yeah, it was very interesting. So that that was really, you know, that was a big strength of Terrence. He was so articulate. 
charismatic. He's he was well educated, and and he could make whatever he was talking about make sense, even or sound like it was making sense, mm-hmm. even when it he, it didn't. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, he he had so many uh, interesting ideas that uh, opened up so many people to. Uh, to new possibilities, but there there were most certainly a few of them that were very very controversial. Time wave zero, mm-hmm. novelty theory being a big one, which I tried to explain this to a friend of mine once, and just just ex- trying to explain it, I sounded completely crazy. I said it's a something. A, a, he was trying to figure out how to measure time through using the I Ching, which is an ancient Chinese method of divination that's somehow based on hexagrams and maybe a map of time. And my friend looked at me like I was out of my fucking <laughs> mind. And I'm like, well, the idea is that time is like a, an algorithm somehow or another, right, and you can right, track it. Right. So, are you? Do you? Familiar with the I Ching at all? Uh, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, so, yeah. so that was the framework for this idea, and and uh, you know the time wave. I mean, that's one area where we had a very different perspective. You mm-hmm. know, uh, and uh, actually, in the book, I have a chapter on the time wave, and I kind of unpack the time wave, and my own perspective on it was that, uh, you know, he postulated that the time wave is an actual map of time, right? And I think that's where he overstepped the bounds. I think what really happened was he rediscovered an ancient Chinese calendar, you know, that because you can use the I Ching as a calendar. There's no doubt. He's demonstrated that. But if he rediscovered an ancient Chinese calendar based on the I Ching, that would have been remarkable. A few Chinese scholars would have congratulated him, and nobody would have, you know, noticed mm-hmm. beyond that. But then he, he, you know, sort of postulated this whole crazy notion about time and about how time was a fractal structure and made up of resonances. And anyway, the the sort of, you know, the thing of interest for most people was that he had to postulate an end date, and. He postulated several end dates, you know, because that theory said it had to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. He postulated several end dates, but the one he finally settled on was December 21st, 2012, you know, which was close enough. I mean, I mean, he actually postulated an end date that was slightly off that by it was November, weeks. right? He had a November, yeah, November, yeah. right. And, and so then, it. so we're talking about a cycle of billions of years, right, right? right? So he looked at that, and then he found out, or already knew about the Mayan calendar, and thought, well, they're close enough. Let's just sync these together. But there's no direct connection to the Mayan calendar, other than that. But didn't he say that he arrived at it completely independently of the Mayan yeah, calendar? Of the yeah, Mayan yeah, calendar. yeah. He, well, the time date. He yeah, said that was that he, like. Yeah, sort of I don't know. F- a little fudgery, <laughs> Plus, a little fudgery. Little I mean, fudgery. he he arrived at a date that was close to that, right? You know, and then, but but also, uh, you know, during the time there were several times in the past when he postulated end dates that you know were. I mean, the time wave wasn't well known, and there were you know th- it came and went, and nothing happened, and he just viewed that as part of the process of trying to uh, to you know fit this thing against history did anybody go back and re-examine the I Ching for the possibility of it being a really effective ancient Chinese calendar 
Did, has anybody looked at that aspect of it? Well, no one to my knowledge except Tarot's. I mean, if you, wow. just, if you just split that part out. That seems it's like it's out there, though. Well, that he said that, that. It's a, that it's a calendar. Well, that Terrence, you know, believed it was like. Why wouldn't someone follow up on that? I mean, that it, I mean, let a, forget about the the map of time thing, which is like really right. really hard to follow. But just that aspect of it seems like it would be worth looking into. It, it would be it would be worth looking into from scholarship. Yeah, definitely. I How mean, there's no doubt that it is a perfect. 384-day, you know, 13-month lunar calendar. I mean, it works very well. It works as well as any other calendrical system that we have. You know, they're all, they all have inaccuracies. Um, you know, and, and that alone is remarkable. And if he, you know, but he had this whole other theory. And, and you know, the, the problem that I had with the with the time wave theory was that um, there was no way to quantify it. This idea of novelty. I mean, I believe novelty ingresses into the continuum, but it's hard to put a number on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if just look around, novelty is ingressing into the continuum, and it, and it appears to be accelerating. But maybe that's just our impression. But this was his idea. The question is, how do you define a novel event, right? Are novel events, I mean, he, he, he had the theory that novel events suddenly erupt into history and, uh, you know, make a change. And they, those kinds of events are really rare, you know. I mean, asteroid impacts, that kind of thing. Yeah, those are abrupt novel events. But he used to cite, for example, you know, the... Uh, dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, you know. I mean, that was, that had a huge impact on history. Everything after that time was different, you know. It changed our lives. But was it was that the novel event, or was it the testing of the bomb in Alamogordo, or was it, the, you know, Einstein's discovery of the equations that enabled this to be possible? All those things were novel events, which happened very quietly and kind of unnoticed, but if they hadn't happened, this spectacular thing over Hiroshima would not have happened either, right? So, so my view of it was that novelty kind of diffuses into history rather than erupt into history. And pretty soon, you know, everything changes. But it changes over time, and, and we're not even subjectively aware of it that much. What was his motivation to, yeah. to pursue that, like to pursue such a strange and uh, very hard to follow theory. Well, <laughs> to pursue this time wave theory, well, f- to to explain that, we really have to go back to... We should probably explain the time wave, too, for people who don't know what the hell we're talking about. Yeah. There might be <laughs> yeah. people that are going, what the fuck what are they What is the saying? time wave theory? Right, well, the time wave theory is this mathematical construct, you know, based on the I Ching that Terence got basically downloaded to him when we did the what's been famously known as the experiment at La Chirera, you know, which the book also talks about and which again, a lot of if you're a Terence McKenna fan, you know what that is. If you're not, you're wondering what the hell is this, you know. So, but the experiment at La Chirera was when we you know, well, how do we explain it? I don't even know if we could go into it on the podcast, but it was 
something that we, we attempted to do, <laughs> you know, when we went to uh, South America looking for exotic hallucinogens, and, and this was in 1971, and uh, we were motivated, I mean, I'm sort of getting off track here, but I'm trying to bring it back mm -hmm. to the issue of the time wave. We were motivated to go in 1971, basically by our interest in and fascination with DMT. I mean, that was what got us going because we had uh, encountered DMT and the hate and in Berkeley in the 60s. It was very rare, you know, extremely not, not, on the streets or anything, it, it was it was hard to come by, but we had come by it and had the experience of it and thought, "Holy Christ! There, you know, there is nothing else more interesting than this that we've ever encountered." And so, you know, we were involved in all the political turmoil and the anti-Vietnam War movements and you know, free speech and all of that. Terence was at Berkeley. I, I wasn't particularly, but we we just thought. You know, none of that is relevant. This is truly the most amazing thing that we've ever encountered. And so, and so, you know, our original um, motivation to go to South America was because, the, as you know, the, the smoking of DMT is very short, right? It's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and you come back... And you're like, what the hell was that? What the fuck was that? You know, you you can't bring back much from it other than just an overwhelming impression of awe and amazement and that you've looked into some other world that's more bizarre than anything you've ever seen, you know, encountered. So we thought if we could find an orally active form of, of this DMT that we it would last longer. That was a simple rationale. It would last longer and we could kind of get our sea legs there and figure out what was going on. So That's a hilarious expression for DMT. Get your sea legs. Get your sea legs, <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Just spend a little more time. And, and so we read about this very obscure uh, uh, drug prepared from a uh, species of tree in South America called Virolas. And Schultes, the famous ethnobotanist from Harvard, wrote about, wrote, published a paper in 1970 called Virola as an orally active hallucinogen, right? Now, Virola is normally used as a snuff in South America, right? I mean, the certain tribes, the Yanomamo and other tribes, they extract the sap, they dry it down, and they make a snuff out of it. But there were a couple of tribes that made an oral preparation from it. So that attracted our attention, and we decided to go to South America and look for, you know, this, this Witoto drug <laughs> called Ukuhe, or something like that, Ukuhe. Uh, and it happened to be that the uh, ancestral home of the Witoto was at La Chirera. That's what led us to go to La Chirera originally, right, was the search for this drug that no one ever heard of except us and Ari Schultes. And uh, so we went there looking for that, and... Uh, well, at the time, nobody knew much about ayahuasca. I mean, ayahuasca is also an orally active form of DMT, but we didn't know that at the time, and nobody did. That, that Maybe we can talk about that later. But, uh, but we went looking for ukuhe, right? When we got to La Chirera, we found that 
the mission village that we set up, that we stayed at, the Mission La Chirera, had cleared pastures all around, about a couple hundred acres of pastures. And they brought Cebu cattle into this place, the white humpback cattle. Well, the shit, the, the dung of this cattle is the preferred substrate for Psilocybe cubensis. And it was a particularly rich year that year. I mean, the, a lot of rain, mist on the pasture and all that. So literally every cow pie had huge clusters of psilocybin mushrooms, uh, you know, growing out of them, right? And uh, again, this was 1971. A lot of people hadn't had much experience with psilocybin mushrooms. But we knew from our references what this mushroom was. We didn't, we'd never taken it, but we thought, great, psilocybin mushrooms, wonderful. So we were, del- we were misled, right? We thought that ukuhe was the real mystery that we were after. It turns out psilocybin mushrooms were the real mystery, and psilocybin is, in fact, the perfect orally active form of DMT, right? The psilocin, the active form of psilocybin, is just one mol- one atom different from DMT, and it's perfectly engineered for human metabolism. It's non-toxic. It's orally active. It's easily, you know, excreted. It's all. It's ideal. It really is. It's the perfect psychedelic in some ways. So we thought, but at the time we thought we were after ukuhe. So we thought, well. Okay, so these mushrooms are here. This is great. While we're waiting for the real mystery, well, we can eat these mushrooms. Well, we started eating the mushrooms, and pretty soon things got very weird, you know, because we were literally eating them every day, and they were they were. Um, we just started having a lot of very interesting conversations, mm. shall we say? <laughs> How many days did you do this for? Oh. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, there wasn't that much to eat at La Chirera. We had brought canned goods and rice and things like that, but we found that it was very easy to just kind of slip a few mushrooms into the soup, you know. They didn't taste bad. So probably for a week or ten days or so, we were pretty much taking mushrooms constantly. Wow. And uh, And it began to suggest this experiment that we could do you know it it began it 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 the mushroom or the intelligence that spoke through the mushroom you know it was never quite clear but there was definitely it was like having a very intelligent guest at your party and you know you didn't see it but you definitely were in touch with it and it began to suggest this this experiment that we could do i mean this wild experiment the experiment at La Chirera. And uh, uh, we, you know, I don't know how much detail you want to go into on this, but we we performed this experiment, that uh, trying to get it back to the I Ching and the time wave thing. We performed this experiment, which was something like creating the philosopher's stone, essentially, out of our own DNA and the DNA of a mushroom and sound and light and singing to the mushroom and coming up, you know, creating these superconducting resonances. And, you know, I mean, 
crazy stuff. You can you can read <laughs> read about it in the book, you know. But it, but we had this idea that that we could essentially. Uh, I mean, I guess I should back up and and explain it. We had this idea that the sounds that you could hear on high doses of mushrooms. I don't know if your experience with DMT, you hear things, right? Yeah. You often hear overtonal sounds and the whole aural space is as interesting as the visual space in some ways. Well, on high doses of mushrooms, that's similar as well. And, you know, if you listen to these sounds, uh, you can start to sort of try to imitate them and, uh, you know, you can sing along with them or you can vocalize along with them. And the attempts to vocalize them are generally, you know, not so good. They're hard to imitate. But you reach a certain point where you just lock on to it. And then it just pours out of you in a, ver in a very powerful way. And in a way that it's like almost being possessed or something. This, this, this sound energy just pours forth. So the mushroom suggested to us uh, a lot of ideas about what these sounds were and, and how they could actually set up molecular resonances, you know, in our own brains, our own DNA and the DNA of a mushroom and that we could essentially, um, well, <laughs> create, in some ways, create uh, the ultimate object create the ultimate artifact, which would be ourselves, our own minds in an externalized form. That in you, a physical form that you can carry around? In a physical around. form that you could actually carry around. It would be a binding of space-time. And it would be, I know this is crazy wow. stuff. <laughs> that is the highest you can get. I think that's as high as a human can get. Well, no if higher. you could have this thing, well, <laughs> right. so we had this theory about how to can how to how to uh, you know induce this sound, generate this object, not only generate this but but fix it. Like in alchemy, you fix mercury. You know, I mean that's the final step of alchemy because this stuff was like mercury. This was like mines. It was the violet. Psychofluid, we called it. You know, it and was, this was a shared vision between the both of you. Both had this was a sh yeah a shared ideational vision in a certain sense. And so, the, how was it coming to you? It was the mushroom was uh, you know the mushroom or whoever was uh, communicating through the mushrooms was just matter of factly sort of wrapping this down. And, and, you know, we were receptive to it, and it was like we're writing furiously, and it's like we developed this experiment, this idea, which had a whole lot of predictions. I mean, crazy predictions that, yeah, you would actually have, at the end of the day, you would have, or the night, more accurately, you would have a physical object that would, that, you know, would be outside the body, but it would be you. <laughs> and it would be like, and it turns out there's all sorts of, precedent for this, right? I mean, the idea of the alchemist's stone, the philosopher's stone, or the time machine, the flying saucer, the, you know, the alchemist's scrying mirror, you know, that you can look into and see the future. I mean, this idea haunts the human imagination, that there is a way you can externalize the imagination and you know, still be it. And, and this thing that you would have, or whatever it was, 
would be responsive to your imagination, and it would be able to do literally whatever you could imagine. That's sort of, is it, that's sort of an alternate theory on UFOs, isn't it? As well, that your the imagination actually can conjure up a physical object. Yeah, and, and even yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. That's what we're saying. Uh, and even Jung speculated yeah. about that. That's right. So you know, I mean, I know this sounds crazy. Forty years later, it sounds crazy to me too, but at the time, it's like, <laughs> this is what's going down. <laughs> right, right, right. And you both agreed to it. That's what's even we crazier. We both agreed to wow. it, and we made predictions about what would happen, right? Uh, when we did this experiment, this is what will happen. And the predictions were such that it, they couldn't possibly happen, because, you know, this is absurd. You can't create, you can't externalize the mind in this way. But we made predictions and when those didn't happen, a bunch of other interesting things happened instead. We had literally painted ourselves into a conceptual corner where something happened to, had to give. And so we both went into a prolonged altered state for like 14 days. I was smeared across the cosmos, literally. And, you know, I, I, I was, I hearkened back to a recent period when I'd smoked DMT and my entire mind was co-contiguous with the, you know, boundaries of space-time. And Terence became extreme, you know, he became complementary to that. He became extremely hyper-vigilant and uh, very focused on our place and being like the anchor. Like if I was out there in the cosmos, he was the beacon that was bringing me home. And our companions, these poor people, <laughs> thought that we were completely nuts, you know, and they were not participating in These this. are the locals? No, no, the two people that we'd gone with oh. who were, it was like they had stepped back w from it. So they were sober? earlier. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> oh, that must have been so strange. But we were strange. like, oh, it was very strange for them. I'm must sure have been it was strange, strange for you, too. It was, oh, strange for us, too. You guys being... But we were making sense to each other, and there's actually a term in this for psychology. In psychology, it's called the folia do. It's the, it's the the folly of two, simultaneous, you know, psychosis essentially. But it wasn't a psychosis. That's the thing. People have to understand. It wasn't a psychosis. If anything, it was closer to a shamanic initiation. I mean, the motifs of shamanic initiation more than the motifs of psychosis fit what went on. We were transformed, and we were transformed in a complementary way, and we also reintegrated, more or less, uh, you know, so that, I mean, I'm fairly functional now. I don't know that I've ever totally reintegrated, but you know what I mean. It wasn't a Shamanic initiations where you go through this metamorphosis and, and things are done to you and you're torn apart and you're changed, but then you're put back together in a different form. And, and that's really what happened. But I wasn't put back together as the, you know, superconducting, uh, you know, bionic creature with access to all information and all space and time. That didn't happen. Uh, you know, and, and so to try to bring this around to w wither the time wave, the time wave 
came about because Terrence was, you know, in this hypervigilant state where he didn't sleep for 14 days, you know. He was watching over me, for one thing, because I tended to wander off and, you know, I was completely three sheets to the wind, literally, you know, and, and off in this, this cosmic fantasy world. But he was very focused, but he started making um, making charts of time. He was trying to predict. We, we had done this experiment, and we had predicted that the stone would condense in this physical form. And at the end of the experiment, that didn't happen. But we were getting the message that... We did everything right. It's just your timing that's off. And it will come, right? The stone will condense at some points. But so it became this whole game sort of of trying to predict when will the stone condense. And so Terrence began charting our course, you know, and he, he found like he was, he counted back 64 days, two times 64 days to the, to the, uh, you know, from the date of the experiment, and it turns out that was the date of our mother's death, the previous October, right? And then he started counting forward from that date several cycles of 64, and it turned out that was his birthday in 1971. So that became a sort of focus for predicting when it would condense. That course came and went. So over the years, he tried to... I guess fine-tune this prediction, fine-tune this, and that's what the whole elaborate time wave theory grew out of. You know, he, if, if there was an alien artifact that was given to us by this experiment, then it was this. It was this mathematical construction, you know, which wasn't given to me. It was given to him. What was given to me were, uh, you know, I mean, the experience of, of you know, being smeared over the cosmos and then gradually over 14 days basically condensing myself back into a body and in you were know were you eating was i eating uh i don't know uh, i guess somebody was feeding me i mean i wasn't doing those things it was it was someone must have fed me do you remember going to the bathroom do you remember i don't up? but you know what i remember i remember that i was in hyperspace i was co-contiguous uh, I shared topology with everyone. So if I wanted to, to take a shit, for example, I would ask my friend to take a shit. <laughs> wow. I could, you know, and, and I, I could eliminate that way because our topologies were joined. Or, you know, if I wanted to smoke a cigarette, I'd ask Vanessa to smoke a cigarette and I, I could... All, all those kind of crazy. Ask things me to with. smoke a cigarette for you, please. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. I, I mean, I know this sounds crazy. I shouldn't even be talking about. No, it no, you should in public. But <laughs> um, do you subscribe to the idea that, like these ancient cultures, like uh, the Mayans and uh, these these people that had these incredible structures that very likely this was psilocybin-induced or their culture was psilocybin-induced? Well, I th yeah, I do. I think there's a good chance that it was. Uh, I mean, I think that that wasn't the only, that certainly wasn't the only 
factor. Yeah, theogen that the Mayans knew about, but that was an important one. What else did they know about? Well, they knew they knew about a lot. They knew about, you know, they knew about all the Central American ones, the Morning Glories, Ololiuki, the, you know, probably Salvia, probably all of those. But the Mayans definitely knew about mushrooms. And uh, I think it's likely that mushrooms, you know, I mean, if, if, you, if you talk about the stoned ape theory, mm-hmm. you know, which you've talked about and Terence has talked about, it's most likely mushrooms, you know, that because mushrooms are pan-global. They're found in every, every climate. You know, if it's tropics, it's, it's Psilocybe cubensis. If it's temperate, it's Psilocybe semilanciata. But these things are all over the place. They're potent. They don't require any preparation, right? No technology needed other than the curiosity to bend over, pick it up, and munch it. And, you know, and once you do that, then the impact had, had to be profound, you know. And, and, and we're talking about omnivorous primates here who are hungry all the time, very acutely you know, keyed into their environment. I mean, it's it's not like they're going to overlook this, right, right? Right. So they'll see it and they'll eat it. And they it. test things, and they are they're exactly, omnivores. Exactly. They they're omnivores and they test things, and so they test this, and then they get the the message. You know, and I I think that uh, you know, I mean, in the stone ape theory, there there are things that are puzzling to me that I I totally don't completely understand it's like you know we were you know if you if you look at the archaeological evidence for the critical period when consciousness emerged in our species except for a couple of indications that go way back like half a million years but but uh, you know the efflorescence of artistic expression, which is really the only way you can tell happens sometime between a hundred thousand years ago and 8,000 years ago. You know, you look at the cave paintings and some of the oldest ones, the Blombos Cave in South Africa goes 80,000 years. That was clearly, those artifacts were clearly done by conscious beings with an artistic sense, you know. So if that equates to cognition, but then the, the you know, then clearly consciousness was happening, you know, somewhere after a hundred thousand years up until now, presumably, you know, consciousness was happening. But if you look at the fossil record, the, the neurologically modern brain was much older than that. You know, I mean, essentially, you know, at least a hundred thousand, maybe two hundred thousand years older than this emergence of consciousness. You know, the neurologically modern brain, with all the apparatus needed to generate language, right? And it's all about language, and it's about this making this connection between sound, image, and symbol. You know, meaningful symbol. And and I've argued in. Uh, a lot of lectures and so on. I mean, my shtick, if you will, that what this is, what this amounts to is synesthesia, right? Synesthesia being the translation of one sensory mode to another. Well, like psychedelics do, right? Psychedelics 
reliably induce synesthesia where you can hear colors and see sounds. That's the most trivial aspect of it. Um, most people can't do that without psychedelics, but some can. Some are genetic. Some people are genetically synesthetic, and their experience of uh, meaning and language is uh, is very different. Uh, it's interesting that synesthesia in genetically synesthetic people is often associated with languages and language and number. You know, so they'll say crazy sounding stuff like. You know, the letter C is hard and chrome-colored, you know. And they're, think, they're speaking in the abstract, but this is a, uh, an actual perception for them. Or, you know, the, the, they'll talk about the personality of the number nine. Whoa. Now, these Crazy are they, stuff, are they right? functional, these kind of synesthetic oh, people? Many of them are brilliant. Yes, they're totally functional. So they're seeing all this around them all the time, but they can still manage their way to move through it? So yeah. So they're essentially walking through a, a living mushroom trip. Yeah, kind of in a sense. I mean, I think they are aware of their sort of cognitive environment, if you want to put it that way, uh, uh, the one, the same one that we inhabit, but a lot of this stuff goes into the background for us, right? Unless we take a psychedelic or something like that, and then it comes out into the foreground. It goes on in the background. That That's essentially what I'm saying. The process of understanding language is a process of synesthesia that we're not even aware of. Right, where we have we live in we live in a world in which abstractions and symbols are as real as you know anything in the outside world, right? And we live in a world in which symbols have significance, and that is the basis of language. We our, our ability per, to perceive meaning, uh, and it's based on this sort of unconscious synesthesia which we do all the time and uh, mushrooms may I mean with respect to the evolution of the primate brain uh, what I what I think I'm postulating is that that you know something like mushrooms were able to trigger these types of synesthetic experiences in, in people and they essentially became training tools for learning cognition training tools for learning, you know, how to associate meaning with meaningless sounds and essentially meaningless symbols, meaningless visual cues and aural cues, but it made the essential connection to significance, the feeling of significance, you know. Am I making any sense? Yes, absolutely. So okay. that that's the mechanism involved yeah. of taking an intelligent thinking lower primate and turning it into a human being. Right, exactly. Do you ever and, want and to they, take they, a chimp and give it a lot of mushrooms and see what happens? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, would, of, yes, of course. Oh my God, that's all I would want to do. <laughs> right. I just feel like there, there's got to be something to that. Right, but it doesn't happen abruptly. It happens over time. Right, right? but just it, have and, a whole farm. Well, yeah. But, but again, I mean, there are mushrooms. other things going on. There yes. are, There are, you know... I don't know if it's a... Climatological it's, it's factors. Climatological factors, maternal inheritance factors. You know, I mean, this is a whole other area of... 
We didn't you know, even really describe the theory for people who don't know what uh, the higher primate theory is, or excuse me, the oh. um, that's my uh, that's this T-shirt here. The um, the the stone ape theory is that psilocybin mushrooms or psychedelic mushrooms were responsible for creating human beings, and the one of Terence's assertions was that. Uh, the the doubling of the human brain size mm-hmm. occurred over a period of about two million years, mm-hmm. and that this uh, correlates to the timeline of uh, these uh, rainforests receding into grasslands, and then these monkey you know apes experimenting with different food sources. Now does right. that does that stuff all jive with like core samples and like climate studies and is all that stuff the same? time where the human brain size doubled is that all legit it, well yeah, yeah it's pretty much legit i mean we know that there were you know i don't think you could put your finger on any one factor and say this was responsible right. for the expansion of the human brain but definitely the you know transition from arboreal to to uh, plane type existence existence on the serengeti uh was a time of incredible environmental stress for these for these primates and for the whole environment they had to adapt and they had to you know learn a whole new diet a whole new mode of existence and it's not clear at the time frame that that this took place over but i i think that uh, and and it's and it's not clear how much of it just happened i mean it's not clear that this necessarily triggered consciousness but it certainly triggered adaptations uh, in in these primates that you know they were they were forced into so that perhaps got them ready when the time came it's it's i mean that's the part that's difficult to predict or, or, or nail down how long how far back were these mushrooms used you know was it a transient thing or did the climate change you know, there was there a point around a hundred thousand years ago where the climate in that area got much wetter, and suddenly these things became more uh, more common, or were they always there? And you know, it's it's just difficult. But I think one of the characteristics that we do know about psychedelics is that they they can induce this feeling of what's been called portentousness, right? The feeling of a feeling that an experience something is significant, it's a feeling of reverence or awe or, you know, all of those things that we associate with religious sensibilities. You know, it's not that psychedelics, you know, there are religions that have been founded around psychedelics, obviously the mushroom cults and, and all of these things. But psychedelics are not a religion, they are in a sense, the religion, or they, they, they hit those parts of our brain that are capable of having religious, religious responses in some way. And so when you get that going, um, then you have these primates with a sense of being in touch with some, you know, in touch with some transcendent, other that is more significant than themselves that that they feel a longing for and i think that's the religious sensibility and that that's also what what drives our species forward you know is this is this longing to know 
the unknown, essentially. You know, I mean, uh, Terence talked about, and, and actually Rudolf Otto talked about, the, the psychedelics are a mysterium tremendum, right? Rudolf Otto talked about this. They are a tremendous mystery that is terrifying and fascinating at the same time. And uh, this has been the continuing carrot that's, that's pulled our species forward, you know. In, in my lectures, I, I sometimes liken them to the idea of the monolith in 2001. It, you know, Kubrick tried to concretize that idea, the idea of the monolith, something that's utterly alien, totally incomprehensible, completely terrifying, and fascinating, right? They can't take their eyes off of it, and it inserts itself into history or evolution at critical junctures. It just shows up, you know, and things happen. And I'm saying we don't need to invoke the monolith because that's what the psychedelics in nature are, you know, our own built-in monolith, you know, built into the biosphere. Do you find it frustrating that that's not considered um, by the standard people of science when they t discuss theories of evolution? The you know, I mean, they'll, it's really strange to me oh, how they factor it out. Yeah, it's weird how they. Uh, there's obviously a bunch of different factors: cooking meat, you th the throwing arm. You know, there's a lot of different right. factors. Right, so meat right. And, but why would they not consider that as well? That's always been really confusing to me. And the only thing that makes sense is that they haven't done it. Well, there you go. You That's just the only said thing that it makes right sense. there. But yeah. I mean, even you know, um, um, Graham Hancock talks about this. The uh, the person that wrote um, this very interesting book about the cave paintings and uh, the mind and the brain is the name of the book I, I forget the author at the moment but this very well respected you know south african scholar who wrote a book about how altered states in you know in the you know shamanic rituals carried out in the dark or in the almost total darkness in these caves that's what the cave paintings were about these things were paint, painted by people in highly altered states doing shamanic ceremonies. But even the guy who wrote the book will not take mushrooms. You know, Graham Hancock attempted to get him to. I mean, he wrote about his work with uh, great enthusiasm and admiration. He said, you know, if you want to confirm your theory, this is what you do. Why is he it that if it. he did do it, though, if he did do it and did do it publicly, it would it would hurt him in an, in an academic sense? Well, do you yeah, agree with that? That's probably why he didn't do it. But is why it, would it hurt him? I mean, it seems to me it, it would hurt him because drugs are verboten. Yeah. You know? But in fact, that is the honest thing to do as a scientist. And and I think if enough of the right people you know, the people in this field actually would let themselves have this experience, I think the controversy would resolve itself because those of us who have experienced it, it just seems obvious. It just seems, it's very strange to me that it's not considered even as a factor at all when if you've had the impact 
uh, you've, you've had the experience personally, you know the incredible impact that it has. How could that not be considered in, in terms of something that affects consciousness? If you're, you're talking about someone who has no science, someone who has no books to read, someone who has, you know, whatever language existed at the time, having a, a blowout psychedelic experience would be so staggeringly profound on the shaping of your vision of the world yeah. that it's weird that it's not considered. And it's really a shame as far as the, the way the, the people that educate people in this world, whether it's in high school or whether it's in universities or colleges, that they personally are not aware and or e- have been educated by this experience because it's, it's not what everybody thinks it is. They, we, everyone no. has this idea that it's escape from reality, you're running away from things, you're c- clouding things up with drugs, and that the, because no. it's under this one blanket, this one blanket of description, drugs, it's, it, it's really weird that it's not considered as a factor in the development of the human being. No, well, exactly, because of the rubric it's put under. I mean, there, people, it's one of these things that exists in the shadow, you know, it's, it's in the shadow, and, and the reason it's in the shadow is because it is a true mystery, and true mysteries are freighted with numinosity, right, with the numinous. And, you know, I mean, despite the lip service that the church pays to all this stuff, I mean, the main mission of the church is to ensure that people do not have genuine religious experiences, right? I mean, yeah. that's the most dangerous thing to the <laughs> to the church that there could possibly be if someone bypasses all the, the priests and the whole you know, hierarchical structure and just goes out and talks to God. Well, God's going to give you a different message than the priests are giving you, I tell you. Yes. You know, that's dangerous. It's dangerous. What did you think of John Marco uh, Allegro's work, the sacred mushroom in the cross, his assertion that, for, for the folks who don't know this one, just the brief one, he was a scholar who was a, an ordained minister who became uh, a, a theologian. As he was pr- uh, studying theology, he became uh, agnostic and reviewed, according to him, the Dead Sea Scrolls and believed at the end of 14 years of studying it that it was essentially the entire Christian religion was about psychedelic mushroom use and fertility cults. And he wrote this book called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, and it's his, that's his assertion is that Jesus actually was a mushroom. Well, I don't know if, I don't know if Jesus was a mushroom, but I do think that uh, Allegro was a serious scholar, and I think, he, I think it's a shame that he was vilified the way he was, because yeah. he was a philologist, right? He was a specialist in these, in these Aramaic languages. He was one of the people appointed, one of the scholars appointed, to the translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he was incidentally, apparently, according to Andy Redovit and people like that, he was the only one who wasn't a priest on this committee, for one thing. So he was immediately sort of outside the officially approved circles. I think to the... I'm not a philologist, but I think to the extent that... uh, I mean, you know, so I'm not really qualified to interpret whether his scholarship was together or not. Uh, he was well quali- He was well enough qualified to be appointed to this to this translation committee, so he must have had something going for himself. And when, in his his account is, 
he says, honestly, you know, when I reviewed all this stuff and began to put two and two together, it seemed that there were all these allusions to fungi and, you know, to mushrooms. And uh, I didn't come to this with this agenda. That's what's in here. You and know. he was a straight guy, too. He, he was a, a straight guy. Yeah, he was a straight guy. So I, th- I think that he was a good example of an honest scholar who honestly reported what he found and who his message was unacceptable. And so the, you know, the establishment, the powers that be, the higher authorities decided basically he had to be destroyed. And he was. His reputation was thoroughly trashed. Um, uh, you know, now is it true? I mean, you know, was Jesus a mushroom? Did they use Amanita muscari or some other mushrooms? I think it's likely. Uh, you know, we know that the uh, the uh, Gnostics, which is the pre-Christian or quasi-Christian group, out of which you know that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, out of which Christianity supposedly sprang. Um, they had a lot of very peculiar notions and, and notions that would be considered heresy by, by, you know, Christians now. I mean, I mean, the God of, of, uh, of the Bible of Genesis was seen in Gnosticism as an evil entity, right? Because it was keeping, keeping, uh, humanity imprisoned in, in the world of matter when the soul, long to be liberated into the light and all that. So that was his uh, view of this whole thing. That was not Allegro's view, but that was the view of Gnosticism. That's a pretty psychedelic uh, vision right there, you know. And I I wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, this group, you know, was was using either Amanita muscaria and or some kind of psilocybin mushrooms. The craziest quote from the book was that he had translated the word Christ back to an ancient Sumerian word, which meant a mushroom covered in God's semen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a heavy one. Yeah. Especially for a guy who's not doing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a straight academic. To, this is what I got. Right. You know? This is what he had. And he had to be you know, discredited because yeah. that wasn't the message that, you know, but, the, but, it's you know, weird that should it we be surprised? I mean, the church has been suppressing right. stuff, you know, for years. I mean, I mean, look at the Bible. The Bible is a very select compendium of gospels, but there's a lot of material that never made the cut as we know. It's weird that to me that with the uh, incredible power that the psychedelic mushrooms must have had on ancient people. We know people have been taking them for a long time. We don't, we, we, we know for sure they existed. How are they not being used all throughout these religions today? Like, how did, how did all the different intellectual societies of this world lose touch with perhaps the very thing that gave us our initial intellectual curiosity? Like, how did that happen? How could it happen that at the highest levels of learning, which is where we're at in 2012, if you, you, know, if you follow a linear timeline, this is as advanced as we've ever been. So if that is the case, how is it possible that it's removed from CNN and the New York Times? It's not something that's being, not just a once in a, 
Blue Moon John Hopkins study, which shows that it improves your personality. But right. some legitimate consideration to that it might have been a factor in why we're here. And we're one of the reasons why we're so fucked up, one of the reasons why our society is so crazy is because we're detached from one of the very things that might have created this human being in the first place. That seems to me to be something that should be considered. It's, it seems to me like if you look at all the other factors like eating meat and the throwing arm and you know, figuring out complex you know, problems and hunting and all, all the things that could have happened, mm-hmm. how could you not? be looking really closely at this one mushroom that makes you see incredible visions, explore realms that seem realer than this real, this reality that we live in right now. The only reason is because either you're, you, you're, you haven't experienced it or you have experienced it and you're terrified and you're trying to keep everyone else from it. Those are the only two. So uh, we're, you know, how I, is it I possible? Think, I think it's more the latter. I mean, I think... You know, what we have to understand, the the proper venue, if you will, or the proper human institution to kind of be the steward of this mystery, it's a real mystery, right? The cap- Even though we understand a lot about the neuroscience, we can talk about neurochemistry and receptors and all that, that does not make the connection or cross the bridge between what we experience when we take it. We We know all about the the underlying neurophysiology of it, but it still doesn't bridge the gap to what we actually experience, right? So it's important. So it, so I say it remains a mystery, as, as does the very, you know, conundrum of consciousness. You know, how does the brain-mind generate or experience consciousness? But, you know, it, it is a genuine mystery and human institution uh, and properly should be the the province of religion but religions don't serve that anymore religions are political institutions right i mean they they if they have a real mystery they want to put it in a box and put it over here someplace and keep people from it you know because that gets in the way of promulgating the doctrine and the doctrine is you know toe the line don't ask too many questions have faith Right, you must have faith, which generally means, which means essentially, you have to believe a lot of stuff we tell you that for which there's no evidence. That's another you part know, of the. Map. You believe it because we <laughs> tell you to believe it. So yeah. have faith. Uh, don't ask too many questions. Uh, you know, and and basically toe the line. So they're they're political institutions. Religions are. They're into bludgeoning people into a certain mode of behavior and they work in conjunction now in our culture with governments and corporations and to have people you know taking mushrooms and and having all these funny ideas and questioning the status quo this is not this doesn't serve the agenda you know of But how the, many people who are making the agenda how many people really truly have had the experience is it, is it a, few. a very few? So is it is it that they don't want these people having it and 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 you know thinking about things and coming up with new solutions and trying to reshape society, or is it complete ignorance and just trying to suppress it because it's it's in their best financial interests? There's no. Well, that's hard to. That's really hard to know. I mean, whether they do it out of ignorance or whether they whether there's a more sinister agenda which is, you know, perhaps some of them have had this experience mm. and and realize that for people to be having 
these types of experiences a threat to the status quo because exactly as you say, it motivates us to change the way we are, to change the way we relate to the world, you know, and we're no longer good producer consumers, you know, we don't fit into the agenda anymore. I mean, I think it's ironic, you know, (laughs) just in a way, you know, back in the 60s, DMT used to be called the businessman's trip. Right. The yeah. idea was you could smoke it on your lunch hour and get back to work after your lunch hour, except that after you smoke DMT, who would even want to go <laughs> back to your cubicle? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So they're inherently uh, you know, subversive in, in the sense that they encourage people to take personal responsibility for themselves you know, and think for themselves. Thinking for oneself is a discouraged activity these days. There's also the issue of a lack of uh, guidance in this country, especially when it comes to these uh, d- different things. Because of the fact that they're illegal, there's a lot of misinformation. Right. There's, there's a lot of misinformation. People don't understand how to use them. They don't understand where they're going to get them from. They, it's, right. If there was, uh, like, it would be amazing if we had shamanic institutes where people mm-hmm. would go and uh, there would be someone who could literally guide you along. I mean, if we were really... An intelligent well, culture that trusted each other as grown adults with the ability to make choices and and have educated choices. Yeah, we, you know, it just seems like th- we're well, missing out. Well, uh, give it twenty years. You think? I, I I do. I think I think that despite all the resistance, that's probably where it's going, and it will happen in a very subtle way and it won't attract a lot of attention but i think that i mean you know until it's a done deal in a sense uh, i think that what we're witnessing now is that with this psychedelic renaissance you know i mean the 60s and all that that's all gone but now a lot of the hysteria has died down and now we're in a position to revisit this whole thing and take a second look mm-hmm. in a calmer way and I think a lot of the research that you see happening is going to, I mean, I know the, I, the work, the institution I'm affiliated with on that respect is the Hefter Research Institute. People should check that out, hefter.org, um, because most of the leading researchers in, in psychedelics are on our board, right, or either on our board or supported by, our, by Hefter to some degree. Uh, but the work that people like Roland Griffiths are doing, uh, there are other investigators, but he's well known. What he's doing is is the the way you open the door, right, to the use of these things is two paths, either religious or medicine. You know, if you can find a legitimate medical use for psilocybin, then that changes everything because that means that the FDA can be pressured to change the scheduling of it. Once the scheduling of it is changed, it's now Schedule 1, right? And the first criterion of Schedule 1 is a dangerous drug with no possible medical use. Well, if you do good, rigorous science and you do several clinical studies, which is what they're doing with this psilocybin end-of-life kind of approach to it, helping people to come to terms with their impending death and deal with the anxiety and the, and the you know, spiritual crisis around that. That's essentially what they're using. But 
if you can show legitimately that it has a use in that respect, then you can change the regulatory framework. You can you can actually get it approved for that use. Once it's approved for that use, you have to change the scheduling of it from Schedule 1 to probably Schedule 2. But then you open up the possibility of off-label uses, right, as with any drug. And then therapists can start to use it. And I think that you will see uh, in 10 years, maybe, you will see exactly that. You will see institutes, places where you can go. I mean, the next step is to say, well, if psilocybin can benefit dying people, maybe it can benefit well people. Maybe it can help well people, people who are not sick. Come PTSD. To PTSD. Uh, another example, you know. But just spiritual evolution, just a discipline, you know, uh, which is what shamanism is. People have to go to South America now to find this stuff, you know, and they do, and a lot of them go there because they're not finding any spiritual satisfaction in our own institutions. So what we have to do is create our own institutions that are not copies of South American shamanism, but our own, you know, our own neo-shamanism, in a sense, that borrows from these different traditions, but that works for us, you know, works in our culture. Do you see the lack of uh, changing of the classification of marijuana? It's still Schedule 1, despite all the evidence that there's medical uses for that. Do you find that as, like, discouraging? And if anybody hears that noise, that's Dennis playing with Velcro. Oh. Okay, don't get <laughs> mad at us and say there's some <laughs> static electricity, because people will get mad and send, like, 100 Twitter messages. Oh, Bro, so fix your shit! I'm so sorry. Listen to your show, you're fucking static. <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm a fiddler. What can I say? No. <laughs> Don't worry about it. But the back to the question: Do you do you see that the um, the classification from marijuana, which still, despite all the evidence to the contrary, even some really interesting stuff about cancer, you know, some all that Rick Simpson hemp seed oil, and or I guess it's really hash oil. It's because it is psychoactive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hash oil. But he calls it hemp oil. I guess mm-hmm. maybe to make people feel better about it. But right. wh- whatever it is. The, the, the work that that guy's done and, and all the different studies have shown the, the, what it does to, for glaucoma patients, what it does for wasting syndrome, and people have a hard time getting... Why is there no change in the classification of that? Because it seems like there's a, a good body of work that shows some medical uses for it, especially when you consider that cocaine is Schedule two. Right. Cocaine is med- Schedule two because it has recognized medical use, right? That's hilarious. Well, yeah. I mean, the... The whole situation, in, in a way, is I think with respect to cannabis, is is somehow different because it's so freighted with political considerations. I mean, that don't really plague the psychedelics to the same extent. Because even though we're immersed in this world of psychedelics and we think it's important, we're still talking, you know, two, three percent of the population at most. If that. that even gives a shit yeah. about psychedelics. Marijuana is like 60% of the population. So I just think you're seeing, you know, I mean, I don't know. I think the pharmaceutical cartel in some ways is lined up against this because medical marijuana is potentially so useful for so many things that they're making money on right now by making drugs to treat them. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at their 
research efforts, if you look at what's going on in the back room and they're not talking about, they're totally into cannabinoid chemistry, right? I mean, they're developing all kinds of pharmaceuticals, but those are patentable compounds that they can own and produce synthetically and charge you a lot of money for. So I think that pot is a threat to the hegemony of the pharmaceutical cartels. That's one thing. I think the government is kind of deer in the headlights about it, you know, as the Obama administration's reaction to the latest legalization. I mean, finally, they're beginning to get their act together and say the right thing, which is, okay, apparently this we'll just let this social experiment go forward and see where it goes, which is the right thing to do. And I think if they do that, you'll see it evolve. Toward other states will say, well, Washington, Colorado, legalized pot. They didn't collapse, and they're making a lot of money off taxes. We want some of that. We'll do that. So I think you'll see it change over time. But I would agree with you. But look what Obama did in the first administration, his his first years with the DEA. The DEA busted a lot of pot clubs where he said he wasn't going to do that. I know. I know. He said he wasn't going to do that. Well, it's even grosser what they do, what they actually do. I know a bunch of people that have been busted. They take all your money. They take all your pot. And then they say your case is pending and they do nothing. They mm-hmm. just they just rob you. Yeah, they, ro- they essentially rob you and stop you from doing business and scare the shit out of you, so you right. don't do it again. But That's because right. you're not violating state law, they they don't really pursue you. They just steal from you. They and just shut ruin you. Down. you. They just ruin yeah. you financially and every other way. That and they can. physically, well, because you're going to be freaking out because you're thinking you might have to go to jail. Because right. federally, what happens is when you are not violating state law, but you are violating federal law. When you go to trial, they don't even let you use the term medical marijuana. It's not allowed to be used in court. It's inadmissible. So there is no medical marijuana in the eyes of the federal government. So you can't even defend yourself by telling the people in the jury that you were not in violation of a state law. Right. It's incredible. And yeah. it's, it's really a terrible crime on humanity. I mean, that's really what it is. And the government is essentially a criminal cartel yes. in, the way that they, in the way that they handle that. this. Yeah, unquestionably, you you're know, putting people in jail that do not, not only do they not deserve to be in jail, they haven't done anything wrong. And right. they're, they're providing people with something that they want, and they're doing it according to a law. It's a, a state law, and mm-hmm. that is a real sickness when people think that they're vindicated or justified in some way for locking those people in cages. Those are the real criminals. That's right. the real criminals in our society is the people that are locking people in jail for pot. Like, that's a real sickness. And a real and the, the hypocrisy is just so outstanding in everywhere, in every bar, in every drugstore, everywhere you go there's alcohol. And yet you're going to lock these people in a cage for right. doing something that's not nearly as bad. That's insane. The, here's the thing. Yes, it, everything you say is true, but the thing is, the people see through this. The fact that you could get this vote in Washington and Colorado mm-hmm. is a very hopeful thing. If they will let it go forward, then over time they'll begin to see the benefits of that, right? In the sense that, exactly as you say, pot smoking is not nearly as harmful as alcohol. So you'll see reduced traffic fatalities, you know, people may be driving stone, but they're safer drivers if they're stone than if they're if they're intoxicated. You'll see reduced incidences of domestic violence and other kinds of violence. You'll see that actually 
letting people smoke pot alleviates a lot of societal problems. I mean, it won't eliminate them, but you'll see statistically significant reductions in a lot of the parameters that, you know, because we know that alcohol, you know, fuels violent behavior. It fuels domestic violence, traffic accidents, all this stuff. Those things will be reduced if people start smoking pot in place of that, you know. Um, I, guess, I guess I'm just disappointed in the fact that it's taken so long that I've become kind of cynical to how the, the, the way the government approaches it, because it just seems so ridiculous at this point. Well, it does seem ridiculous, and it's, it's like the emperor has no clothes. I mean, yeah. it's like this policy has so long been in place, and there's so much inertia behind it, right? Mm. There's the whole law enforcement infrastructure, you know, the DEA, the prison industrial complex, the, you know, I mean, so many things depend on, it's not just the drug cartels, I mean, and their profits go away, but the whole governmental infrastructure to support the prison guards unions. Yeah, all of those yeah. things, they're enormously threatened. They don't want things to change. You know, the last people who want to see pot legal is drug dealers. Their profit margins go out the window. I don't think they really lobby that much, though. I don't well, think they're no, the they, issue. No, they don't. But you know what I mean? And the government has a big yeah. investment in the current, you know, situation. I feel, if anything, the one thing that's going to change everything is the Internet. It's just the access to information is so complete now that there's yeah. really it's 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 too hard to maintain ignorance. Right, and for people for the government to maintain that marijuana has no medical application is just absurd. I mean, it's just absurd. Although well, they they do everything they can to discourage research, you know, out of one side of their mouth they say, well, we want people to apply for grants and we encourage research, but then they make it impossible to get legitimate sources of cannabis to do the research. So which is it, you know? Uh, so it is, uh, it's a bad situation, but, uh, but I would say this, I, I would say that we have to remember, you know, we have to take a longer term sort of view of this and we have to remind ourselves that we're witnessing a, what we're what is really going on here is a coevolution you know between us and these plants and this has been going on for we don't know how long a hundred thousand years at least cannabis is among those plants right and and so if you take a small slice of historical time and say well, what is our current you know species relationship with these plants it doesn't look very good you know they're being suppressed and all that. But it's a small slice of time. In the end, the plants win, right? Because this is what's going on. The plants win. You cannot eradicate cannabis from the face of the earth, much as they might want to, and they really don't want to, <laughs> you know? There's just a small group that are profiting from it being illegal, and they would like to continue to do so. That's they would our like issue. to continue, yeah. I would and say it the... will change. It will change over time, you know? I, I really think so. Yeah, I guess, like I said, I think I'm frustrated by the fact that it's taken so long. But, yeah. But that's also because 
And so many people have had to suffer needlessly, people that are in jail now who don't belong there. There's a terrible case about a guy in Montana who was a grower who was following the state law, even had uh, state law enforcement authorities on a regular basis come out to his grow houses. And he showed them what he was doing. He was providing for all these different patients in Montana. And... uh, this guy's up for 80 years in jail. I yeah. mean, he's, he's up for more in jail um, than he would be if he killed somebody. Yeah. I mean, jail's 25 to life for murder, and this guy is in it's 80 years is his potential sentence. It's insane. Yeah. For growing some plants that the state approved, the state made a law, they approved it, he was there. Um, he brought the state people in. They said, yep, everything's good. Brought mm-hmm. the state police in. Yep, everything's good. Okay, we're good. Okay, we're good. Let's grow some pot. Right. Grows the pot, gives it to all the sick people, and now this poor guy's up and for an the, 80-year stretch. Right. It's and ins- then it's the insanity. DEA comes in. And- now, as a man of science, and you clearly are, what, what, how do you feel when you see like CNN and you see like Dr. Drew talking all this craziness on CNN about... Uh, withdrawal symptoms and withdrawal syndromes, he was saying, from, from cannabis use. And now about the cannabis today is so much stronger than it was when we were younger. It's incredibly dangerous. These words, incredibly dangerous. It's like I, I hear this nonsense, and I'm like, this is, again, a man who can't see describing a kaleidoscope. This is a, a person who right. doesn't know what right. the fuck they're talking about. Quite a guy so. who's incredibly straight. And he's, he's, he's describing something, and it's always negative. Ignore every artist. Ignore every person who tells you it makes food taste better and makes sex feel better. Ignore all of that. Ignore all these people that are quoting all these positive things and focus on w- what is most likely bullshit. If you, if you go by personal experience, like what we all know, if, if someone is having, like, psychotic episodes because of marijuana, I have got to think they're going to have psychotic episodes anyway. i got to think marijuana just got them there. But they were already fucked. I mean, I would, I would have to assume, just knowing my own personal experience right. with the drug. Right. When someone who hasn't had an experience with a drug and they're talking about it, it's maddening. It's, it's a crazy person talking. It's like, where are your bodies? Where are these numbers? Well, these people are... You know, they're cultural icons who are paid to paid to That's speak a very with important authority, point. right? Not I just mean, that, paid by the pharmaceutical companies. Paid by the pharmaceutical companies, the media, everybody else to put out a certain meme, a certain message and you know, so you shouldn't be surprised. I mean I mean that's just you know Does it drive you crazy though? Like when you see that, if you were flipping through the channels. I don't know if it drives me crazy. Yeah, it does. I mean, it drives me crazy, but I'm so old and cynical and <laughs> jaded and, you know, I mean, it, it's like, I, it drives, it doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I think the only solution is, I'm not sure what the solution is. The solution is to get the right word out to people somehow, and that's what things like your program and other other channels well, I you know, feel like try to do. And, uh, you know, I mean, um, I like to plug Arrowwood. You probably yes. know about Arrowwood. Wonderful people who are doing a good job of uh, bringing actual facts, you know, to the table. And so we need more resources like that. Yes. And they're not pro or anti-drug. Right. They're pro-fact. Yes. Which is what I admire about them. And, yes. Uh, the trip know, reports are very helpful. For very helpful. Know. And they will say, you know, the dangers are this, the, mm-hmm. you know, you need to be aware of these possible hazards and, 
And, uh, and that's the only thing, education. The only solution to this is just say no, you know, K-N-O-W. <laughs> that, that's the thing, you know. And this is, and that's it's all about education. You're missing right? out it's, on some money. Yeah, it. Well, not, you be I didn't invent it. Believe me. Whose quote is that? Just say. Well, I think it's Timothy Leary. It's it should be online. <laughs> Someone should have a cafe press shirt ready to go. Yeah, so I'll be able to get off on Amazon.com but, right after this. But and buy you it. know, the thing is, uh, it's it's really all about education. It's it's about empowering people to make informed decisions about what kind of substances they're going to use under what circumstances what their intentions are there's a protocol there's a way to use these things in a positive way and a way to use them destructively i i'm i'm fond of i mean i i always tell my students there is no such thing as a bad drug or a good drug they don't have moral qualities human beings have moral qualities there are plenty of opportunities to misuse a drug or use a drug in a bad way. That's not the drug's fault. It simply has the pharmacological chemical properties that it has. Right? Right. Poison is an evil. It's yeah. just poison. And it's all about how people use it. Right? Yeah. It's, it's human behavior is what we need to focus on, and that's what drug education doesn't focus on. It, it talks about... The drugs almost as though they were demons or pathogens or like they had some kind of independent existence and they were an evil virus or something. They are not. It's the way people use them. And what what needs to happen with drug education is, you know, they don't want to admit this, but here's here's the bald truth on it. It's not about teach, telling people do not use drugs. Right. I mean, they say that's got to be the message, and that's the only message. True drug education has got to tell people how to use drugs. That's the difference. How if you you know if you choose to use a psychoactive substance, then here's a way to use it. You know, here's what you do to maximize the benefit of it and minimize the harm. It's simply that simple. You know, uh, but drug education doesn't, you can't institutionalize programs that are going to tell people how to use drugs. Isn't that funny, though? It's funny. I mean, it's stupid. We, <laughs> we, we expect people to learn how to drive a car. You know, we encourage uh, responsible drinking, whatever that is. So in that one instant, you know, we, we say we encourage responsible usage. Not that people use it in a responsible way. Well, I think we're big on people figuring out shit for themselves, which is why we send people out into the world essentially with almost no knowledge whatsoever about sex and love. When you're young, you just sort of have to stumble into it at your most vulnerable and confused time. Yeah. Same, no, yeah. same issues apply yes. to sex, yeah. right? Sex education and drug education are jokes, well, I think <laughs> the way they're currently practiced. That well, that's a joke, and what's also a joke is just the the, the, the raising of human beings. I, I think so many people in this country are being raised by people who are essentially children their entire life. They never really did develop a, a true understanding of themselves or of their place in the world or an objective sense right. of this whole thing and the, right. the the great mystery of it all. That's never right. conveyed. And then they raise children. The children have to somewhere or another wake up and go, okay, nobody knows what the fuck is really going on here. This is a, we, we live in a world of madness and momentum. And it just right. continues in the same path, even though everyone knows it's crazy. But can you imagine 
I mean, how many people can step out of that framework? You know, it's rare. It's I mean, enough, if you're, if time. you're, you know, if you grow up, if you're, if you're rela- raised in a religious household, you know, especially a fundamentalist household, you're not encouraged to think about very much, you're right? Heavily I mean, that's discouraged. Heavily discouraged. Yeah. You're encouraged to. This is what you need to believe, and all this other stuff is, you know, heresy, and you, you, you know, you're condemned if if you think about that. So, I really, I mean. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, we could get off for another 40 minutes on anti-religious rage. Don't but. just say it. Just do it. <laughs> don't well, say it. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, the, it's ideologies. The, uh, any ideologies. Is the, the issue is when someone is thinking about what they should do and it's already written for them. So subscribe to this. Well, yeah. everybody's situation is different. Everybody's life is different. Your wants and needs are different. Mm-hmm. And instead of all these different uh, ideas of what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do and what is evil and what is good, we've lost the ability to figure out what kind of an impact what we're doing has on other people and judging that first and foremost. And that, I think, is a very, very much a religious and a psychedelic principle, that, I, that idea, the idea of looking at everything in, in his, in, uh, as how it's affecting the other people around you first. And if you did that, no one would ever impose that kind of restrictions on your children. Because if you were truly looking at the development of the children, the first thing you'd say is, well, I don't want to fuck this kid up. Right. You know, instead of suppressing this kid and having this unbelievable resistance, which every goddamn human being has ever had, ever, when you tell someone not to do something, they want to do it. When you try to control them, they want to break free. When you're a controlling person, they want to pierce their nose and go fucking crazy. Right. it's, it's, It's the same all throughout humanity. So we should have... We but should be able to figure that out by now. Well, some have and some, some have, do, but yes. do you know, I mean, for you to be able to say that, to have that perception. A million had to have it before you, me. You, well, and you, had, you have to be an exceptionally enlightened, open-minded person, you know. Or if, a comedian. If, if you're, or a comedian or, <laughs> or someone, yeah, exactly, who pushes the envelope, right, who really... Who, who makes a profession of, out of stepping out of the box or trying to look at things from, you know, a broader perspective. But if you're a person who, you know, I mean, if you were raised in a strict religious household, chances are your children are going to be raised in that household. And you never really look, you know, you never take the blinders off because, you know, there's all sorts of bad stuff out there and you, you just don't want to know about it. And, you know, and, and that's the problem. Uh, you know, yeah. um, of the ideologies. The, yeah. the problem is the predetermined patterns of thinking. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I like to say, uh, I think that uh, psychedelics are extremely valuable with respect to, you know, sometimes I talk about faith. One of the things that's interesting about psychedelics is they don't require faith, right? I mean, religious belief, religious tenets are usually postulated on this idea that here's a whole bunch of things that you should believe and there's not a shred of evidence for any of this but you must have faith my son mm-hmm. right that this is well why why should you have faith right. you know chances are it's a lie i mean right. you know we know that the religions have been scamming us for centuries so not scientology 
Oh, <laughs> no, they're they're legit. <laughs> sure, they're legit, right? <laughs> trying to join Scientology is my latest thing. You know, I see. Working my way in. But the thing is, with psychedelics, faith is an impediment. You don't yes. have to have faith. You what can d- just have what you need to have is courage. But what do you say to the people, the cynics, the, the you know, the people who would look at the psychedelic experiences and say, okay, you are glorifying and and you're over exaggerating what's essentially a hallucination. Your visual cortex is being bombarded with these foreign chemicals. You're seeing things that aren't there. And all this is is just your your brain's need to make something profound out of what's essentially a malfunction, a malfunction of your 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 thinking, a malfunction of your visuals. And you've sort of attached all this importance to it after the experience is over. Well, that, that's the cynical point of yeah, view. Yeah, right? that's the cynical point of view. But to that, I would reply that, you know, what we call ordinary reality, ordinary consciousness, uh, even consensus reality, is essentially a hallucination. I mean, right? The reason drugs work is because we're made of drugs. You know, and whether or not we're on drugs or not, our brains are creating, you know, this reality, which, which we know does not resemble the real world, whatever that is. I mean, the instruments of our physics and so on tell us that the world is a quantum world that's full of vibration. It, it doesn't look anything like this. And that atoms you know? are so essentially we, mostly hollow. Our, a lot of what our brain does is synthesize a, a hallucination, essentially, create a model of the world that we proceed to live in. You know, I mean, the world that we, you and I share and everyone share, this is a model of the world. This is a a model reality, not the real reality. The real reality is completely unknowable and will always remain so. So for people to say, well, you've just, yeah, you've disturbed your brain chemistry in a novel way and you've, you've tuned into a different channel, essentially, but you're still working with a model, whether it's a model of the world experienced through the lens of a drug or whether it's experienced through the lens of, you know, sober conscious perception. It's still a biochemical artifact in a sense. Our brains create this. We live inside of it, you know, and uh, that's, so, so that's what I would say to those people that it's not that, you know, there is some kind of objective reality which we're immersed in when we're not on drugs. It's more that we're on drugs all the time, you know. Our brain is a organ that happens to churn out drugs, <laughs> you know, which we call neurotransmitters yeah. and hormones, and that's what our brains run on. So all all you do when you take an external drug is you tweak one or more of those sets of receptors that the neurons are talking to and you know you get a slightly distorted signal from what we what we have come to accept as ordinary reality there is no ordinary reality or we don't know what it is we it's it's forever unknowable in terms of our subjective experience. There's a very I mean, does strange. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. There's a very strange desire to um, discount something that uh, you can't like put on a scale. You can't like can't bring it back and show it to someone. But essentially, most of what you experience in your everyday life is just that. It's just an experience. You're seeing things. You're feeling things. Right. You're traveling. You're taking in information. But we have this real need. Uh, a lot of people do to discount 
the things that happen to discount the the vision of the psychedelic experience, the hallucinations, the the visuals, the 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 profound impact and the sounds. Even though those are experiences that you are taking in as an individual, mm-hmm. as a human being, as an entity, you're taking those in. They're they're dismissed. They're discounted because the, you know you can't you can't hit them. You can't you can't paint them. You can't you know there, there's nothing there. You have nothing there. You can't that experience, although oh, but, significant to you. Well, yeah, but but now I mean that's part of the the task I think is to be able to bring something back yes. from that place, and people do. I mean I think that's a lot of what psychedelic art does and and these sort of creative interfaces. It's not that people go out and take psychedelic drugs and never produce anything. You know, those experiences influence them profoundly. Mm-hmm. And you may not be able to exactly reproduce them, but given the technologies that we have access to, you can come pretty darn close, you know, with multimedia technologies and computer graphics and all this stuff. And it may be that, you know, well, I mean, I, th- I think this technology is only going to get better as we evolve, you know, toward it. Maybe in 10 or 15 years, you won't have to take psychedelic drugs because we'll have neurotechnologies that just do the same thing, you know. Or you, maybe it is that you, you know, you take one psychedelic drug, you take a capsule, and it's a nano machine that will, on demand, produce any kind of altered state that you want to call up. One of the more um, fascinating... Scary, but also within the realm of possibility. That's the scary part, (laughs) is that it's not just science fiction. One of the more fascinating concepts that uh, Terrence had was the the concept of the singularity as he saw it, you know, the, the technological singularity. A little bit different than the way Kurzweil and a lot of these futurists saw it. He thought it was very likely going to be a time machine or something along those lines, something that will be created where there's a new technology where time ceases to be linear. What, mm-hmm. did, you, did you wrap your head around that? Like, how did you uh, feel about that one? Well, yeah, we did. I mean, we love to, to play with that idea. And, uh, you know, in fact, we used to, you know, Terry used to speculate that, you know, the, at 2012 that the singularity will be triggered the moment that time travel is invented. And everyone and everyone after that will, of course, want to migrate back to the original moment when time travel was invented. So right. suddenly there'll be all these time machines right. know, condensing out of nowhere. And instantly. <laughs> instantly. Everything right. changes. Right, right. Everything changes. No one can even wrap their head around that idea that infinite time and distance into the future would all be able to access the moment the first time machine was invented. That's right. Like, they would all come back. Time travel would certainly change everything if you could do that. I don't know. I mean, physics pretty much tells us that time travel is technically possible, but only if you have access to manipulation of energies that are likely to be way beyond us for quite a while. You know, black hole levels of energy and that kind of thing. You can do funny things with time, but there's always a possibility that, you know, there will be a breakthrough. Right. You know, you never know. Well, we're we're never going to stop. My my thought about human ingenuity and our constant desire for innovation is that I don't ever see it stopping. It seems to be a part of what the human animal is. 
and what it does here. Mm-hmm. So when if someone like um, I, do, I do not remember his name, um, the guy out of uh, University of Connecticut who was the he's the lead time travel uh, expert. He's a really fascinating character. He's like a guy in a Spider-Man book hmm. because his father died when he was a young boy. So he became determined to build a time machine to go back and save his father. Oh. Yeah. Really fascinating guy. I cannot remember his name. Uh, I will eventually. Um, but his, um, his Ronald Mallet, his, uh, his idea, I think, uh, was that once he had really thoroughly researched time travel, he realized that you would never be able to go back before the moment a time machine was invented. That there's, you're never exactly. going to be able to go backwards. Exactly. Yeah. But you can go back to that moment. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Terrence yeah. had that idea yeah. long before this guy did, and this mm-hmm. guy was like, you know, he's a legit peer-reviewed scientist. On, and I mean, he's had like he has a, a peer-reviewed paper on the the science behind time travel, and they all agree that yeah, if you could generate this insane amount of power, you could be able to do it. You could do it. I find it amazing that Terrence had this idea as well, like really long before it was like sort of a mainstream thought. Well, you know, you can attribute that to, in a sense, what we were immersed in when we were kids. I mean, we were both completely uh, sucked into science fiction. We were very much immersed in science fiction. H.G. Wells' mm. novel, The Time Traveler, yes, yes, you know, yes. The Time Machine. I mean, that was a huge influence on me. Yeah. I probably read that sucker 10 or 15 <laughs> times. I know? read that when I was a kid yeah. as well. I, I was totally fascinated by, by that idea. All the versions you know? of the movie as well? Well, so at least two that. versions. Right? <laughs> <laughs> at least two fun. versions. Yeah, I, versions. I, th- I think the first one was possibly a little better. But yeah, so those ideas, you know, were were out there. And, yeah. uh, and again, in under psychedelics and shamanic states, you can time travel. You know, have you read uh, Graham Hancock's new novel? No, very interesting. No, Entangled. Yeah. Oh, you should read it. I would yeah. love to. Very yeah. interesting. I've read his nonfiction stuff, and uh, this is his first novel. But it's all about a, a essentially a time bridge between a, a shamanic person seventeen thousand years ago and a modern counterpart in their communicating across their entangled, literally quantum entangled. And it's, it's quite a fascinating novel. He had fun with it. I find it amazing that we've able, we've been able to, for the most part, not destroy ourselves with nuclear power because the nuclear power in a lot of the ways, the big impact, the biggest impact it has, not just powering cities, but destroying them. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we've sort of figured out a way to put a cap on that, and really, uh, despite all the conflict in the world, we haven't had a nuclear event like that since the 1940s. Right. I wonder how much more evolved we would have to be to be responsible for the actual use of a time machine. I mean, how much more evolved would we have to be before <laughs> we could have something like that? It wouldn't be the president has access to the button. It would be, you know, the president has access to the hole in the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, what, how do we decide whether or not we're going to do this? How do we decide who we go back in time and save? You know, when events happen in the news, do we have, like, a congressional meeting? Do we go back in time and uh Well, and the thing is, person? I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a misunderstanding of the nature of time, right? I mean, if... I mean, one of the reasons time travel is impossible, supposedly, that kind of time, is because you can't do those things. You can't go back and prevent the Kennedy assassination. 
you know, because you proliferate another timeline and things to uh, at least one more. But then, you know, physicists tell us, I mean, the current theory is everything you do pre precipitates, you know, proliferates multiple timelines. It's, please explain that, because Duncan and I have been trying to wrap our heads around that one, and we've, we've brought it up to each other a couple of times. The idea, it's sort of a, an abstract idea in my head, but every decision you make literally brings up, uh, c creates a different universe. Creates a different universe. And not only every decision you ever make, if I understand it, it extends to, you know, every collapse of uh, of a waveform, every, you know, collision of atoms, every event, every event, no matter how minuscule or uh, insignificant that we're not even aware of, proliferates multiple, multiple time frames. It doesn't make sense. Obviously, we can't wrap our head around this. And it may be that we're, you know, that, that I mean, maybe we're not, Maybe we're not confined to one of these timelines. We're, maybe we're living simultaneously an infinite number of timelines. That's so hard to you wrap know, your head around. Yeah, it's hard to wrap your head the, around. The idea of fractal universes, an infinite amount of fractal universes, and they're constantly changing and moving like, like a, uh, a tide filled with cells, like a tide of cells just washing over the world, over and over, back and mm -hmm. forth, and it never mm -hmm. ends. Mm -hmm. But why not? What, why, why reality? Why this? This is bizarre enough as it is. Exactly. I've always said to people, if, like, if you don't, if you, you know, you don't want to have a psychedelic experience, you are whether you like it or not. It's called life. Because if you existed in some sort of a logical continuum of real objective thought and reasoning and you had to exist in, in life in today, in the human world in 2012. Right. and that was my point. That's what we were saying earlier. The yeah. brain is a machine that simulates the reality that we live in. Yeah. You know, and then... <laughs> You know, so so it it just is. I mean, it's our it 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 takes the raw data of experience and it mixes it together in the way that and it extrudes it into something comprehensible. So the brain is as much a processor of this data from outside as it. I mean, I don't. I think the question of whether the brain generates consciousness is one of the con you know, one of the things that neuroscience has to confront, and I think the evidence is that it doesn't. It's more of really? a detector of consciousness. What evidence is this? What evidence? What, e what evidence is this that the, the brain detects consciousness? That the, well, that it's not a all of the evidence of non-ordinary states, you know, these other dimensions that for shamanism and for psychedelics, they present as real I mean, does the brain dream all those up? Why is the, why are there commonalities between those states? Uh, you know, between people. I mean, you don't have to be fans of Terence and Dennis McKenna to take DMT and have similar experiences. You know, to us. So I think I just don't think that we really have a definitive way to say that all of what we experience arises from the brain. It's more that consciousness is built into the structure of space-time in a certain way, and our brains are detectors and processors, much in the way of a television is a detector of a signal, 
takes in the signal, processes it in a way that's comprehensible, and puts it out there on the screen. So the the ego and the personality and the the lifestyle you choose and what have you, as you're making your way through this this dimension, is essentially just clothing that you wear to shield you from the great outdoors of reality. Essentially, yeah. It's a model that you create. It's a model that you create. And, and, and it helps you get through this. It helps you get through it. And it maps closely enough, close enough to some external reality out there that you can navigate. You're not stepping off cliff at cliffs or, you know, walking in front of buses. So it has a definite survival value. And there's enough overlap between what your consensual world is and mine is mm. and ours is that we can... Coexist. We can talk to each other. We can live in this same space, you know, to a certain extent. It's a fascinating concept. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. And that's one of the more profound aspects of the psychedelic experience is the stripping away of that personality and culture and, 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 and everything and getting to some weird, strange source, getting to this strange thing that exists, yeah. this, this clear thought without For all. For a minute, you get to turn the circuit board over. Right. You begin to turn, you get to turn it over and see how it's wired. I think that's one of the big, useful, interesting things about psychedelics and, and particularly DMT. You know, DMT just rips the curtain back and you get to see the raw data of experience and how it's all, it's everything. Everything, right. you know, memories, people you talk to, fragments of you know, songs, just whatever things are, are swimming around in your head, you sort of see they're all going into, you know, through this funnel or something, and it's coming out all uh, taped together some way in that kind of a coherent picture of, of reality. But DMT strips that back. You get to step, you get to see it from the other side briefly, how it's, how it's working, you know, the reality generating machine if you will that's what you see on dmt what is your thoughts or what are your thoughts on uh alien abductions and and ufo experiences and do you think that these are endogenous dumps of uh, dmt that it's most likely what these people are experiencing is some sort of a um uh, well, overflow or something you know uh, no i don't i mean i, I think that you know, I think that Strassman's work on this, where high doses of DMT can, in you know, in some people, reliably induce these these abduction type encounters. Well, we know they're not, you know, standing beside a highway in New Mexico and watching mm -hmm. a UFO land. They're in a hospital bed you know, with an IV installed, but they're having these types of experiences. For those who don't know what you're talking about, it's Rick Strassman's work. It's a book called DMT, The Spirit Molecule. It's all about the clinical studies and right, things right. he did with DMT. Clinical studies with DMT. And Strassman reported that in many of his subjects who were given high doses of DMT, they had experiences that were similar, if not identical, to the classic alien abduction type experience. So then you do think that that's what these people are having. They're having endogenous dumps while they're sleeping. It's just something's happening and that's No, I no. think that not necessarily. I think that I think that they I think that what DMT does is it lets you poke your head temporarily into another dimension. 
So when these people are having these UFO abduction experiences, you think that other dimension is poking its head into ours? And yeah, something like that. So that you somehow the membrane is thin, and you know whether it's you going there or them going here, but there is you know there there are interfaces between what we call ordinary reality, which isn't ordinary at all, and these other these alternate realities, and occasionally they come together, you know, and the membrane stretches, and then you get these types of interactions. Isn't it interesting? But if that's that's true, I mean, if that's true, uh, that, you know, that model is, you know, I mean, the usual model of, of experience is reductionist. It's like the brain is generating all of this and that's where it's coming from. And, uh, you know, everything we think we know about the world is based on that premise. If this other premise is true, then we have to re-examine our most fundamental assumptions about how it is, you know, how the world is. The um, the issue isn't uh, isn't part of it though that all these abduction experiences, a good percentage of them, happen at night. They happen a lot of them while these people are in bed. They're not happening while people are like um, Monday morning on the highway on right. the way to work. It's right. they're happening while you're supposed to be sleeping, while your brain right. is producing DMT in the first place. Exactly. Do you think that the DMT uh, could possibly? I mean, this is complete speculation, but act as a, a doorway where an actual, real, true entity can come through. So these people that are having these UFO abduction experiences, even if they are still lying in their bed, mm-hmm. they are actually still having this real experience. Yeah, I do. I mean, and if you talk to shamans, people that deliberately induce these states for exactly this reason, to communicate with these non-human intelligences that give them useful information about all kinds of things, I mean, the shamans are just matter-of-fact about it, and they'll just say, well, yeah, what did you think it was? (laughs) You know, this is the way... Reality is. Then that's where the cynics always come in. Where is this information? What are you bringing back? Could someone please bring back an unsolvable equation that mathematics... That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. What do you think, like, that's if you had to point to anything that's been brought back from the psychedelic experiment, you know, not uh, the the Francis Crick thing, that's disputed, right? Whether or not Francis Crick actually saw the double helix while he was on LSD. Well, he said that he did. Yeah, Finally, they on his got deathbed. Though. On his deathbed, there's no recording. You know what I mean? Right, it's right, like I, right. how well, much of that is just a Carrie Mullis, right? Uh, PCR who is, is totally out front about his LSD experiences. Contributed to his insights about this. Mm-hmm. But you're right; it's difficult to Measures bring like something back. Yeah. I mean, and and Terence was. You know, he he has talked about this. He used to, when he was taking mushrooms, do exactly this: get this I-thou dialogue going with the mushroom, and and you know, insist that the mushroom tell him something that he couldn't possibly know. Mm. You know, and the mushroom was always very cagey about it and didn't <laughs> cough it up. Well, it wouldn't you like, think? Well, if I tell you that, you won't need me. But that sounds like the imagination <laughs> to me. I mean, if I was the cynic, I would say, well, that's obviously yeah. your imagination then, because it can't concoct anything that doesn't exist or something you couldn't possibly know. It doesn't have the resources because it's coming from your own mind. Be- well, that would be that would be the criticism. But then <laughs> out of that comes something like this: the time wave zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would submit that the time wave zero was an artifact from this other dimension. But 
do we really understand what it was? I mean, it was a conceptual artifact in a certain sense. It was an idea. So even certainly came from left field. You and know. regardless of whether or not it actually is some sort of a map of time, it most certainly is a 13 lunar cycle calendar. It most certainly is that. And that came from a psychedelic experience, that, the knowledge it, of that. Essentially, yeah. Essentially. Know. So that's, that seems to be something, that you can, at least that aspect of it. It mm -hmm. seems very unfortunate that it's connected mm -hmm. with this idea of uh, a map of time, which makes people stick their nose up in the air. Because if they just looked at it for that, just the, the I Ching being a, a, a calendar, an, an un, a lost calendar, an unknown right. calendar. Indisputably, it's a calendar. Or you can use it that way. I mean, the mathematics is clear. As long as you don't begin to postulate that this actually you know, describes the structure of time. I mean, right. that's where I have a problem with it because, for one thing, you know, time wave zero completely ignores relativity and all the aspects of time that go into that. So, you and, know. And how but so? It, well, it, it claims that, you know, uh, it claims that this map of time describes the structure of time everywhere you know, in all parts of the universe. But we know from relativity that it all depends on the reference frame, right? So, you know, so it's not clear. So I mean, like a spaceship a traveling the speed know? of light, someone aboard it experiences time at a different level in, than a someone on Earth. In a different way. And how do you coincide that? How do, how do, the, how do they coincide? You can't reconcile. It just doesn't account for it, you know. I mean, the problem with the time wave... I'm too stupid you know, for this conversation. At, at the <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around it while, the, the, while we're talking about it. The problem with the time wave, in my, in my opinion, is that it's not... It can't be disproved. Well, right? Neither can Jesus. And so... Right. But science can't disprove anything. You know? Science can't disprove. Well, yeah, science can disprove things. They but, can't prove, but anything. not unique events, right? right? That unique events happened. They yeah, but in other right. words, in other words, Terence or whoever created the time wave theory never defined. These are the criteria that will invalidate this theory, right? And science depends on. In order to qualify as a theory, you have to say what's going to invalidate it. What is, you know, what are the criteria that's going to take the foundations out uh, from under this theory that either means you have to chuck the theory completely or you have to modify it so the model fits the data better, right? And uh, he was never able to, or he never did, and I don't think he was really able to define what would invalidate the theory. So it's an untestable theory, so it's not a theory. Right. So it's just an idea. It's an wow. interesting idea, but it isn't a theory. It's not something you can disprove. And so it's it's useful as an idea, but it's but in some ways it it's not. I mean, you know, you've got if you want it to be scientific, if you want to call this a theory in the scientific sense, you have to define what's gonna what's gonna disprove it. When I meant the science can't disprove things, what I meant is I can't disprove like really unique events, like the idea of a, a UFO actually existing and then disappearing. Like once it's here and gone, if there's no physical evidence, if there's not, I mean, how do you, how can you disprove a unique event like that? But when you, well, yeah, you you don't. Right. I mean, you, you don't. I mean, the the. It doesn't mean they don't exist, though, right? They do exist. Sure. Something exists, Something. right? I mean, I always thought 
the what J. Allen Hynek, the the UFO researcher, famous UFO mm. researcher, said about UFOs. He said, "I don't know if UFOs are real or not, but I know absolutely one hundred percent that UFO experiences are real." Hmm. And that's the data. That's the data that you have to investigate. And he's, I he, think that I think that's a very perceptive thing to say, especially we, coming we, from him. Yeah, he's coming a, from him. He, J. Allen Hynek was a guy who actually worked for Operation or Project Blue Book, mm-hmm. and uh, he was uh, assigned by the government to go and research different UFO sightings. And somewhere along the line, he decided, "Listen, man, I'm going to just do this." And he stopped working for the government and just started spending all of his time researching yeah. UFOs. He was absolutely convinced. But he was always clear that what he was investigating were UFO experiences uh, because mm-hmm. that was the data that he had to work with, you know, and and that's absolutely 100% true. UFO experiences do occur whether those are confabulations of of you know the mind or whether they're you know whether they're extraterrestrial origin extra dimensional origin i don't think we can really say but did you ever have any sort of alien experience did you ever have any sort of extraterrestrial physical contact <coughs> um no i can't say i have you know um, other than being smeared over the entire universe yeah, but that was that was that seems pretty that was my head. That was that was <laughs> it was extraterrestrial. But but Terence did, you know, at La Chirera he did. Of course, there was no one else to witness this, right? right? And he, I write about that in the book. I actually quote at length a section from uh, True Hallucinations in which he describes this. And I have no doubt, I don't doubt that it took place. I mean, there was all sorts of anomalous things taking place at La Chirera. And then again, it goes back to the fact that you guys were ingesting the most incredible psilocybin mushrooms every day, all day. I mean... Well, but... But the really interesting stuff didn't start until after we'd stopped that. Well, even you after know. you stopped that, though, how much of that shit was still floating around in your head? I mean, you guys were talking about <laughs> crazy quantities. Hard you, to say. Did you ever sober up? Are you still high from that? I mean, well, in some sense, we're still <laughs> high from it because that experience, you never, you know, you're always integrating it. I mean, it's rather strange to me that, you know, it's like that was 1971, so that was 40 years ago. And one of the more um, interesting things that Terrence said about uh, psilocybin, which was a real mind blower, was first of all how closely it relates to normal human neurochemistry. Is that psilocybin is like almost exactly the same as chemicals that our own brain produces, and yeah. very alien in that form. That form, the form that it exists, whatever the molecule structure of psilocybin is, it's the only similar with the way it exists it there's not something similar to it or there's not something like it that exists in the the organic world other than uh, our own brain chemistry well yeah well uh, that's not quite true but i i think what he was trying to say that psilocybin is is only found in the fungal kingdom right as far as we know it's never been found in a higher plant although lots of tryptamines dmt is all over the place and uh, if a lot I of its derivatives, but psilocybin and psilocin do not occur, as far as we know, outside the fungal world, outside the world of mushrooms. Why that should be, 
hard to say. Maybe it will be discovered in a higher plant tomorrow or next week, but I kind of doubt it. Uh, you know, f I don't want to get in too much into the chemistry, but I do think it's, I think that, you know, this, this touches on another, you know, remarkable aspect of, of our universe of, of uh, biological being, which is that these tryptamines, DMT, 5-methoxy-DMT, bufotenine, psilocybin, psilocin, DMT itself is two steps from tryptophan, yeah. right? Tryptophan is an amino acid that is universal. It's part of the 20 that go into proteins. So it's an essential molecule of life, tryptophan is. The, the enzymes that convert tryptophan to DMT there are two primary enzymes, uh, amino acid decarboxylase, aromatic amino acid decarboxylase, and, and methyltransferase is what they're call, called. I don't know if your audience cares about this, but the point is two trivial steps from tryptophan leads to DMT, right? And so DMT, you know, the, the, the biosphere is saturated with DMT. It's not an uncommon chemical at all. It's found in probably thousands of plants. It's found in animals. It's found in fungi. It's everywhere. I think it's interesting. I, I mean, I don't know what it means except, you know, stepping away from science for a minute, strict science, but thinking maybe this is a, a kind of a subtle message that nature is trying to send to the monkeys. Say, and that's why DMT's everywhere. Yeah, look, guys, just look around the corner, right? It's all right. waiting for you. It's all there. If I remember what Terrence <laughs> said was what he found fast, it was uh, what he was alluding to was that psilocybin may have come here and uh, from an asteroid that it could survive in a vacuum. And he, I think it was um, phosphorus, I believe, in the forward position, describing the, the molecular structure of psilocybin. Well, psilocybin is phosphorylated, phosphorylated. in the forward position. That's and you right. said it was the only uh, thing that was like that? Is that? It's the only one we've found so far. It's the only phosphorylated indole that we've found in, well, that and some close derivatives, which also occur in the mushrooms. Does that make any sense, then, that that could have possibly come here? We know that what's called panspermia, is that how they describe panspermia? it? Panspermia? Panspermia is how they, they believe that amino acids and essential building blocks from life may have traveled here from asteroids, and that may be how life is seeded on or, this planet. Or, I mean, I suggest in the book, actually, people have to read the book, because... Yes, they have I, to read the book. I, I unpack this. I actually have a section in the book called Reflections on La Chirera. And I uh, try to not only unpack it for the reader, but try and look at it myself from the standpoint of 40 years hence, uh, you know, after the experience and say, what was going on and what makes sense and what might have been going on? Was, was it simply too you know, nerdy guys who went to the Amazon, took too many drugs and, and had, you know, these experiences and that end of story, or was there really something else going on? And the whole issue touches on what we were talking about, about the evolutionary, potential evolutionary significance of mushrooms. And it may be that what we are is a million-year, multi-million-year-long biotechnology <laughs> experiment, <laughs> essentially, where, you know, if a 
super technological civilization, biotechnological civilization with plenty of time on its hands and a certain perspective, if they wanted to take an ecology and see what happened when they seeded these molecules into the ecology, you know, and then watched it unfold, you know, perhaps manipulating the way things unfolded. They, it's almost like, you know, they wanted to kind of, I, I guess, create the conditions where intelligence and consciousness could arise and then see what the effects were in a certain sense. Prometheus style. Prometheus style, although Prometheus, as we all agree, was pretty lame, but, <laughs> but something like I'm glad that. you said it first. <laughs> yeah, something, something along those lines, you know, where if you seed the ecology with tryptophan and the enzymes, then this, this thing is going to be all over the place and then, you know, and probably predate the appearance of complex nervous systems, but... You know, we know, for example, that the serotonin receptors are evolutionarily the oldest receptors that we know, and the oldest neurotransmitter receptors. So, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it's tempting to speculate on this. It's very sexy. hard to... It's sexy. It's yeah. comforting in yes. a certain way to yes. think... There is actually an overlord. A, an overlord that's out there seeding intelligence throughout <laughs> the galaxy. I mean, what a cool idea. But I, you I, yourself, I, knowing so much about biology, looking at the complex processes that occur on this planet that are completely, what, what, I wouldn't say they're orchestrated by nature, but like just the parasitic relationships, the really complex ones that, that parasites have with like the aquatic water uh, worm that gets inside of a grasshopper, grows, then mm -hmm. convinces the grasshopper to commit suicide so it can be mm -hmm. born into the water. I mean, we know about these weird, crazy relationships that exist. Right, exactly. Without so, an so is So, well, but this is a kind of an example of that right. on the galactic scale, exactly. Right. You know, if, if there are fungi in nature, and actually your cordyceps in your yes. supplement is exactly that, you know it's biology. You know, it grows on caterpillars. There are yes. there are some species that will grow on ants, and you probably heard how they work. They will infect the ant at a certain point. The hostoria they will put these mycelium mycelia will infect the ant's brain and trigger it to go from the base of the leaf of of the blade of grass to the tip. Then it will kill it. And paralyzes right, and then and then it can sporulate right. Yeah. It will overgrow the body and release the spores, but it's induced the ant to go from the least optimal place to distribute spores to the most optimal. It's place. incredible. So it's controlled. Yeah. So that that's a phenomenon. That's that an intelligence. In nature. Yeah. That's a kind of intelligence. A spreading intelligence. So why is it so far fetched to think that there is a galactic, you know, uh, super race, or maybe it's <laughs> you know, that infects, you know, complex nervous systems. Wouldn't in, they be busy? In, in our ecology that, that then induces us to, you know, uh, invent culture and, and language and technology and eventually build starships and mm. get off this mud ball. And do what they're doing. And do what they're Continue doing. Continue it. So that's the, the most advanced form of, uh, like, 
forming life in other places. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Or might maybe just also it just could be that. I mean, we, this, we, this is getting so far yes, out. We should probably end the interview right <laughs> here. <laughs> <laughs> we went as far down the what-if ladder as you can get. Galactic right. overlords <laughs> sending spaceships filled with mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like next up crazy you know, town. You have to remember what, I mean. This well, you is have to remember that we exist. You have to remember that we're putting a rover on Mars and taking photographs and possibly contaminating and Mars. And how unlikely yeah. this whole thing is yes. that we should even be here. Yes. I mean I mean one of Terence's favorite phrases and, and I think it's true we should always remember what JBS Haldane said, you know, the universe is not only stranger than you suppose, it's stranger than you can suppose. I love that quote and I love that he used to say queer because that's yeah, what actually I, said. I was going to say. Actually, yeah. he said queer, but yeah. we can't use that term. Isn't that funny that they they the, took queer? They took queer, but the, that's the, what but he the, said. The yeah. universe is a queer thing. It's, it, it doesn't. Can it exist in that way as well? They mm-hmm. nope. Anything that attaches to homosexual men can't have a gay old time anymore. What the they replace it with? <laughs> uh, the universe you, is just a fact. Stranger. Or? They oh. say stranger. No. <laughs> Like, you can't say you have a gay old time. The Flintstones had gay old time in their fucking song. You can't have that anymore. Can't have that anymore. We are so sensitive. We're such little babies. Yeah, yeah. In the middle of all this information, we're trying to chop words away. We're trying to take them, take them away. So, you know, I think, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think that ultimately, you know, people say, well, what can we conclude from all this and what have you learned from taking psychedelics, you know, for 40 years and all that. And the answer is kind of disappointing. It will be disappointing to some people, which is that exactly this, the world is a marvelous place, much more marvelous than we can imagine, you know, and we don't know very much, you know, I mean, there, our knowledge is so restricted, you know, um, and I think that's that's what you learn after all this time. And and this is what ayahuasca, you know, my main plant teacher always insists. You know, remember you don't know shit. <laughs> you know. Don't get don't get arrogant because you don't know shit. You know, you just don't know very much. And so <laughs> it's like you could say, well, I don't know shit, and I feel really stupid, but it also clears the decks to appreciate things and remind ourselves that we don't know very much, but it clears the decks for learning. It means there's so much left to be understood and marveled about and thought about. If you accept the position, yeah, accept the position that you don't know shit, and then enjoy all the information there is to take in and all exactly. the, the fascination and the wonder. Yeah, exactly. Too many people are trying to control the position and they're trying to control it and pretend that they do know shit. And that's the big mistake. That's where right? the knee-jerk reaction to uh, denying global climate change comes from. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, just a, a desire of insecure people to try to rationalize and control things that can't be controlled. And, the, the, right. and as ins- institutions want to do, religion, politics, corporations, the whole yes. thing. Like, we have a model. We, Don't have, we have a corner on the truth. The way we think about it is the way it is, you know? And anybody who challenges that is, uh, is a heretic. Now, how long did it take you after La Trera before you jump back on the horse? It seems like if I got smeared across the entire cosmos for a couple of weeks and I don't remember how I shit or smoke cigarettes, <laughs> I might just fucking quit, okay? But not you. <laughs> how much time did you take off before you jumped back on? Well, I don't know if 
Some Couple say weeks. I never have <laughs> jumped back on, but but uh, how much time did it take after Before that? Before you were I willing could, to, you know, open a can of tuna fish and do like normal things. No, 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 survive. No, 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 no. I mean, how long before you had another psychedelic experience? Oh, another site. Well, it was probably a couple of years. Uh, you know, that makes sense. It wasn't that long. It wasn't really that long. And then after that's a that, long time. Yeah, yeah. Did you like before you did it? Be like, what the fuck am I doing? Do I really want to get spread across the universe? Well, for a couple I, yeah. Weeks? I well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had I had some some worries about it when I went back to it, but but not really because there were so many other circumstances. The psychedelic was just a part of it. A, a lot of it, the reason it happened was because we set ourselves up into this, you know, conceptual or I, I don't know what you call it, cognitive box. We set ourselves, we painted ourselves into this corner in terms of our predictions about what was going to happen, you know, because it was all about time, right? A lot of it was about time. And so when we were uh, leading up to doing the experiment, we thought that, well, the reason all this strange stuff is happening is because a few hours up ahead in the future, we've done the experiment and it has succeeded. And so what we're getting there is the backwash from the future like approaching a singularity. You know, we were getting the backwash from the future, and that's why every, it's warping reality. It literally is warping reality as we approach this thing. So we went into it with the attitude that something had to happen, something physics-shattering, and the, we were trying to overturn literally the laws of physics. We came into it with the idea that something had to happen, and guess what? Something happened just wasn't what we predicted would happen. <laughs> you just went yeah. cuckoo for a couple of we weeks. We went cuckoo for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we, but it was more than just cuckoo. It was this, you know, this, this coordinated uh, experience of Terrence and myself where we were linked and we understood that one person is, we were becoming mirror images of each other almost like a photograph and it's negative and one one entity was going forward in time and another was going backward in time and you know a lot of i mean we had a whole framework where it made sense it might not make sense now <laughs> yeah I'm, well it does and it doesn't i it mean it does it does it does but i'm lying it does but i, I mean I, I i it does but i mean not that i'm lying i mean i'm i do understand that you're trying to express something that I can't understand? Right. Did you have a lot of experiences or any experiences where you saw ancient motifs, whether it's hieroglyphs or Egyptian, or I've heard people that say they've seen Aramaic or Arab type writing and what, what seems to be maybe perhaps the experiences of other people that have taken these same sort of psychedelic drugs and that it's a stored, collected experience. Like that, I know that was one of the things that Terence believed that when you are taking psilocybin, you're not just taking psilocybin; you're sort of conjoining the experiences of everybody who's ever taken that drug ever. Mm -hmm. Did mm -hmm. you feel that? You mean at La Chirera? Uh, at any point? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Subsequently, I have had I have had those kinds of impressions. Yeah, I mean, there. I mean, I think it's interesting that. You know, one of the th 
things that when when we when we came back from La Chirera, one of the priorities in our life was to figure out how to grow those mushrooms, right? So that we could <laughs> reaccess. Right. But I mean then there was partly, you know, there was partly a mercenary motive. But there was also the the real motive was we want other people to have these experiences to see if they confirm you know, what we were experiencing. I mean, were we just nuts or do other people have this similar kind of experience? It turns out they do, you know. So that's evidence, again, for the objective reality of some of these dimensions or the reality. I don't know if it's objective, but you know what I'm saying? You don't have to be Terrence or Dennis. You don't have to know what we talk about or believe in what we talk about. You can take mushrooms under the right circumstances, you know, in the dark, five grams, pay attention, and you will go to the same place. Many people go to the same place. Do you think that that also explains uh, why the in the ayahuasca experience is a, a lot of jaguars and a lot of snakes and a lot of uh, mm-hmm. that, that type of... Because to them, that's the dimension. That's the dimension that's real for those people. And it's just... You know, it. I mean, it. It is to us. It seems implausible and unlikely, but to them, it's like it's a part of their everyday reality. They just accept it. I mean, it's much more matter of fact. Yes, there are are these realms. There are these entities. You can get there with ayahuasca, and uh, you know, if if you look at if you look at the paintings of Pablo Amaringo, for example, or others, you know, I mean, he had this ability to paint that realm as best he recollected it. But that's a tremendous contribution because he provided a window, you know, into that cosmology. You could sort of look into that conceptual place without actually taking ayahuasca. As does know. Alex Gray. As does Alex Gray, a similar kind of thing, yeah. All of, in Pablo's iconography, all of these spirits that you see and UFOs, incidentally, and plants and animals and all that, they all have names. These are not things that he dreamed up. These are part of that cosmos that he is able to depict. What is his name again? Pablo Amaringo. I've got to check him out. I've never heard of this guy before. No? I believe I've seen his art, but I n- did not his know art. his name. Yeah. Amaringo. He has a book that he put together with Luis Eduardo Luna, a good friend of mine. That Luis, Luis wrote the foreword to my book. Oh, I absolutely have seen this guy before. Yeah, you've yeah. seen it. Wow, you've seen amazing him. stuff. Yeah. Wow, so amazing. But yeah, that's... That so is, he recollects his visions and was able to put them out onto canvas, you know. Wow. Yeah, when, when a guy can do that, like uh, Alex Gray especially, some of his images, um, they, they appear Egyptian. They appear the DMT slash Egyptian, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I've always wondered, like, wh- what it, what is that that you're seeing when you're when you're seeing this sort of ancient motif? You know, the the, the it seems un- for whatever reason, it seems like a crazy assertion that you're uh, you're accessing the experiences of all these people that have ever done this this drug. But wh- is it any weirder than cell phones? You know, is that any weirder than the ability to Google something? I mean, no, that seems it's pretty not. goddamn weird. It's, it's you know? inherently not. Is it any weirder than you know? The Hobbit in yeah. 3D? I mean, you could say, yeah, you could say, you know, well, it's a similar experience because these mushrooms activate 
the same receptors in everybody and we all have a similar brain architecture and all that and I, I think that to a certain extent that's part of it but that's not the uh, that's not the whole story I mean again that comes back to whether you know the brain is generating this stuff or, or whether it's actually you know sort of just making the membrane thinner so that you can look at it did you uh, have any experience with uh, sensory deprivation tanks I haven't had very much with that no wow that's so crazy that seems like it'd be right up your alley you'd think so <laughs> yeah i haven't uh experimented with it have you been interested at all uh not really no <laughs> i wow. find that the uh the substances you know uh, seem to reliably do it but yeah mm. I, I should uh should look into it so. I'm a big fan. Are you? Oh yeah, even just for relaxation, for just for the body. You do it in conjunction with psychedelics, or yes, yeah, yeah. okay. So in I that like sense, eating eating cannabis is my favorite one. Oh, yeah. Okay. Eating cannabis and getting to you, the point where you're you're like the way I describe the way I try to describe it is uh, when you're so high that you feel like the 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 parallel dimension, the neighboring dimension, is like a waterfall. And you've got your nose touching the water, and you're right about to push through the other side. That's when you get in the tank. So right when you just, you know, that there's a moment when you feel like you've eaten too much, like you, you had a pop brownie, and you're like, this is not a comfortable feeling. This is a mm-hmm. terrible. Feel. I, I definitely ate too much. That's when you should get in the tank. Interesting. And the, the complete lack of sensory input from the tank, along with that, just blows the whole experience out of the water. I've had some of the wildest trips of my life. Um, from from doing that, the hmm. sensory deprivation tank on its own can get, put you in some crazy places, but 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 on its own, what it's really good for is relaxation. It's amazing for like loosening you up and just you know. soothing the body. And it's an excellent source of magnesium too, because of the salt in the water, it's Epsom salts. Oh uh, yeah. So it's one of the best ways for your body to absorb a good amount of magnesium. Uh, but I just, I, it's one of the things that I've never understood why more people didn't get into it. I know Lilly, John Lilly was uh, the inventor of it. Yeah. And he used one on a regular basis. I just, I never, I always wanted to know why that didn't catch on. I never heard Karen's talk about it either. No, he, he didn't. He didn't use it as far as I know. Um, I don't know. It's such an amazing resource I mean, because he I mean, was always take, in a silent darkness. Yeah, well, exactly. Taking psilocybin in, in near total darkness mm-hmm. is kind of a sensory deprivation yes. kind of thing. That is but tr- you're still in your body. I mean, you right. still are not in this amniotic place, you know. Have you ever tried mushrooms in an isolation tank? No, I have not. Done. Well, no, I did it. I have done it once, but I have not done a big dose. Okay. I haven't I haven't done a lot. But but mostly that would seem to be yeah. A good place for yeah, it. Good yeah. The problem is I have kids. I don't want to be blasted out of my head in that thing and then have something go wrong and you open the door and reality just hasn't tuned back in well, yet. you know, you've got to plan your, <laughs> your sessions. You need somebody to look after it's the hard. kids. It's you know, hard. Set, setting, all that stuff. One of the things about cannabis, though, is that eating cannabis, if, if I get too high, I can still deal with shit. My right. adrenaline rises. I get a phone call. I can call. I can talk to people. I can come back out of reality. I can, I can be okay. Right. Um, and that combined with the uh, the sensory depth tank is uh, it's a pretty pretty profound experience. But I think probably if you were into silent dark, the thing about psilocybin though is it pulls you out so much you almost don't even need a sensory depth tank. It's almost like right unnecessary. That's unnecessary. Yeah, but by itself. But it would be interesting. It would be interesting if your experience with those things you 
you go first, I'll follow. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have one. I have one in my basement. Uh-huh. So I, I like to use it. I use it all the time. But uh, even just, like I said, by itself, just for relaxation. But I just never understood why more people didn't want to have that just as a meditation tool, as a, as a tool for completely getting alone with your thoughts and just separating yourself from any of the input of the body. Mm-hmm. No, it seems that it would be useful. But Terrence wasn't into that, but he was into pot on a, on a serious, regular basis. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> The man had the capacity for cannabis that in, I've never seen in anyone else. I is mean, that part of the reason why he went on these uh, rambling uh, lectures? These incredible. I mean, he would wind. He would wind him up. And uh, some of the the great MP3s that are available on the Psychedelic Salon. Have you you're familiar with the Psychedelic yeah. Salon? Oh yeah. Great podcast. And yeah. Lorenzo, the guy who hosts it, has um, just hour upon hour of Terrence's lectures. Amazing, amazing stuff. But what was incredible was that you just he would just. Go up there and the wind them up, put them on the stage, right. put them in front of the microphone, and he would just go on for hours. Right, and hours he could just wrap it out, and, and that, hours. and yeah, it was. I mean, I'm sure he was credit, fuck. credit cannabis for <laughs> a lot of that. You know, his inspiration. What he was doing was essentially what you know what he used to do. I mean, back before you know anybody knew about him or us or whatever, you know. Back in the Berkeley days in the 60s, you know, he loved nothing more to, than to get a bunch of people in a room, you know, pa- pass around hash or some kind of really strong dope, something that would render everybody else completely speechless. <laughs> so they couldn't say anything, and then he would just regale them for hours, <laughs> you know, and, and he was, and everybody was fascinated, and he was totally coherent. I mean, everyone, you know, a lot of people, they smoke a lot of cannabis, they get quiet, right? I'm one of those. I can't rap on cannabis very well, but he just, he could do it. And that, and then he found not only, you know, if it works for a bedroom full of people on his, you know, in his hippie crash pad on Telegraph Avenue, it'll work for audiences all over the world. So he turned it into a shtick and a living, and thank God he did, you know, because, because wow. uh, you know, we have all that out there. I mean, thank God he did as well, because uh, those recordings and the books and the lectures, uh, th- those experiences changed the the entire direction of a lot of people's lives, including mine, yeah. absolutely mine. Yeah. The first time I did DMT, I, I literally heard him saying something in the DMT trip. I heard his voice <laughs> right. saying something. Right. It was uh, it was just it, his impact. I think is uh, it, it was unbelievably profound. That ability to relay those thoughts in this really compelling way. Really, f- I mean, there, I can't tell you how many gigs I've gone on where I had to travel or had to drive, and I just listened to uh, a psychedelic salon, listened to one of the, the lectures. Just right. so compelling and fascinating, and I think that opens up completely new lines of thinking for a lot of people. It does. And, you know, it's interesting, the, 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 you know, the currency that this has... He's still out there. He's mm-hmm. achieved this weird kind of immortality mm. on the net, yeah. you know. What he said, I mean, when you think about most of this was early 90s stuff yeah. when he was talking about this, but you can put a tape on, and it's just as timely as though it were uttered yesterday. He has this real feeling for 
the future. And, and, you know, people come up to me, a lot of young people come up to me and said, I, everything I learned, I learned from Terrence McKenna, <laughs> you know, and it was like, before that, my life was empty. And now I understand. And, and you look at these people and you say, they couldn't have been more than eight or seven or eight when he was at the height of his career. You know, these people, some of them were in diapers when he was, you know, at the height of his career. So they discovered him later. Yes. Somehow. And he still had this impact. Well, it's because it's so compelling. It's a completely viral thing. I mean, there's a lot of different people that have a lot of different ideas, but they just, whatever, for whatever reason, it wasn't compelling. I think it's a, 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 what, one of the great things that you're doing in, uh, in this book is you're not sugarcoating anything. And, you know, the way you describe your brother is with, obviously, with great love and respect and admiration, but also great honesty. And I, and I think that's, that's very important. I think it's, it's really, really important for recognizing his true contributions and recognizing that, like all of us, he's a human being who is, you right. know, experimenting with all these ideas. And sometimes they, didn't, they, they weren't correct, but that's the only way you get to those ideas. They have to sort of evolve and form, and you have to keep playing with them. And in the nature of that, in the nature of, like, full disclosure, like, what were the, like, if there's any glaring errors that he had made that people have uh, either repeated or that they have misinformation because of these glaring errors, like, what would it be? What glaring errors did he make? Or any errors that, like, deserve mention. I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to think about it. <laughs> uh, you know. I mean. I. I it is. Uh, it is an effort to depict him honestly. I. I hope that people don't. You know. I hope that people see that. You obviously do. You know. I loved him a great deal. I respected him a great deal. And you know. But we had our rivalries, and like all brothers, you know, mm-hmm. we had our sibling rivalries. So. You know, I mean, I loved him deeply. I hated him deeply. It was, you know, <laughs> that kind of dynamic goes on. But when you said earlier that he would say something and you said, well, that didn't make any sense and you contradicted what you said earlier, do you have any, like, specific? Well, he, he would always respond to that. You know, he didn't like me to go to his seminars so much because I was the only one that would ever challenge him. Everyone else is listening in sort of slack-jawed fascination of his uttering these completely, you know, wild ideas. And I was the only one who would really ever get up and say, well, what you said 20 minutes ago doesn't make any sense and it contradicts what you say now. And he would respond with, well, consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds, right? (laughs) Just totally dismiss, you know. (laughs) What a great quote. Right. Oh, that's my new message board quote. Right. Consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. I think he was was quoting Walt Whitman when he (laughs) said that. That's a great quote. that was the thing. So the thing is, Terrence... He liked to have fun with ideas, yes. you know, and in some ways people took him too seriously. And, you know, I mean, there was a, a tendency on the part of some of his constituents to view him as a guru or, a, you know, even a cult figure to a certain extent. I think he rejected all that. He didn't want to be a guru. He didn't see himself as a guru. He wanted to stimulate people to think for themselves 
you know, that was the thing. Don't believe me, but okay, here's a whole bunch of really crazy ideas, you know. There's a great video out with a bunch of images and and Terrence's words, culture is your enemy. Have you ever, culture is not your friend. Yes, culture is not your friend. Culture is not your friend. It's very quick, but it's so, Mm -hmm. it's so powerful, even to this day, Mm -hmm. it really it's 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 so powerful that you you can listen to it and then watch CNN and not be affected. You can reassess yeah. reassess the impact of modern media. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a very that's a very valuable one because in fact culture isn't your friend and a lot of what uh, what Terence's point again think for yourself. Don't believe what anybody tells you. You know, and psychedelics are a challenge to that. All these people that dismiss the psychedelic experience, as you rightly point out, they haven't had it, you know. Or if they have, they didn't pay attention, you know. So so their opinions count for nothing. I mean, they're like the people, you know, they're like the Dutch lens makers who built telescopes but, you know, refused to look through the telescopes because that was a blasphemous act, right? <laughs> It's the same thing. The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. It is available right now. I have it in my hand. It was all funded through Kickstarter because people wanted to get this information. You you, you spent a year about uh, we we discuss, we talked about this about December in 2011, right? This is when we first been were in contact through email. Well, we, yeah, but I actually had you already started. S- well, it took about 18 months to write the book. I started raising Kickstarter money and. Uh, April of 2011, and uh, it's taken, you know, uh, a year and six months to write the book. Please, ladies and gentlemen, go out and buy this book. It's fantastic. It's The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. If you have not subscribed to the Psychedelic Salon on iTunes, go subscribe to that shit. And go and get online. And there's millions of Terrence's lectures. And I don't say millions, but at least a hundred. There are available. And they're fantastic and they're fascinating, as is your book. Thank you very much for coming on here. It's been a a real treat and uh, an honor and a pleasure. And I enjoyed every second of our conversation. And if you ever want to do it again, and we'll push this fucking thing till they run out of paper. I should mention where it is. <laughs> uh, the easiest way to get it is Amazon. There's there's ebooks, and the soft cover books are on Amazon. You can order them. Yes, right I got one of those uh, Kindles. It's yeah. awesome. Just and, download uh, it. Bang. Well, thank you so much. Please, I, it's been I a thoroughly enjoyed this. I did too, and this I, has I been think great you, fun. Yeah, it really has. <laughs> I think you blew a lot of people's minds too. I got to go back and re-listen and Google some shit and 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 think about some things because it was uh, it was it was awesome. It was really a lot of fun. Thank you very very much. Is there any way people can? Do you have a website? Do you have? Uh, yes, we have a website, Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss dot com, with without the the and that actually we're opening up a new website. Uh, that it it exists, but we're completely revamping it. So that's that's already online. And just the other day, I uh, launched uh, DennisJMcKenna.com. Ah, so there we go. You're on Twitter. Are you on Twitter? Resisting. I am, according to my daughter. Your daughter but I nods. Can't, I yes. can't access it. Yet. Oh, you're one of those guys. I know. One of those guys, no, ladies and gentlemen, resisting change. <laughs> That's right. Resisting that, change. That change. <laughs> she, she'll she'll get me onto it. There's something wrong with the password. I don't know. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Of course, uh, we will be back this week. We'll be back tomorrow with the great Honey Honey Band, who will be appearing at the end of the world show with Doug Stan. 
Hope, Joey Diaz, and myself. That's December 21st, 2012 at the Wiltern Theater. Uh, like I said, I think it was, as of the start of this podcast, there was about 100 tickets left for that. Uh, this Thursday night, uh, the Improv in Hollywood. You, they could watch it live on Ustream at Ustream.tv. Uh, we'll try to do it live. If not, it'll be recorded to Vimeo. But uh, we're going to try to do a podcast upstairs and do a comedy show downstairs just like Joey Diaz would be there. Joey Diaz. And most likely me. Most likely you. Uh, I think I'm going to try to get Ari or Dun- I don't we'll know try if Duncan to get Doug Stanhope if he's in town. Duncan can't do, do it, it right Duncan now. can't do it. But yeah, I'll get some people together, some some quality desk squatters. If you want to buy the t-shirts, deskquad.tv. If you want to... Oh, this is this is actually... This is a higher primate show that's actually based ah. on... The uh, based on the on, on Terrence's stoned ape theory, it's a chimp with a mushroom in his mouth, <laughs> and on his his left hand is a floating ohm, and the right hand is the symbol for nuclear energy. Well, that's just so lovely. Those that are that your dope? <laughs> uh, come on, son. With a uh, and he's also got a, a, a third eye with like a some geometric shit coming out of it. I'll get you one of these. Would you rock it? Oh, you bet. Would I take if we take a picture of you wearing this? We'll sell like fucking a thousand of these bitches. <laughs> okay. All right. Listen. Sign thank you very up. much. Whatever. If you ever need anything promoted, please let us know. And again, one more time, folks. The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. We will be back tomorrow with Honey, Honey. We'll be back Tuesday with Joey Coco Diaz. What the fuck? And that's and, our three hundredth uh, episode. That's our three hundredth episode. Oh shit, bitches! So that's uh, a great way to do it. All right. We love the shit out of you guys, and we'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye.